digital transformation and PepsiCo, the future of work predictions for 2023, finance transformations, and the future of supply chain management. Those are just a few things we're going to talk about here on episode number 98 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 98. My name is Eric Kimberling, CEO of Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through the world with their digital transformation journeys. And I'm here, as always, with Kyler Cheatham, my co-host on the podcast here today. Kyler, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, as always. Great to have you. And episode number 98 is here today. Um, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. Be sure to follow us on social media as well. You can either follow uh, Kyler and myself uh, individually and or you can follow Third Stage Consulting on all the major uh, social media platforms where we post useful information on a daily basis. So be sure to check us out there. And uh, exciting podcast episode for you today. We're going to cover some hot topics where we talk about the digital transformation at PepsiCo. We're going to talk about five strategies to network transformations. And we're also going to talk about predictions for 2023 as it relates to the future of work. So it'll be an interesting thread there. And then later in the show, we're going to have Chris King on the show. Um, he'll be our first guest, and he's going to be with us talking about finance transformation versus digital transformation and just some general best practices for helping ensure that your finance and or digital transformation is successful. Uh, he's going to be coming at it more from a CFO's perspective, though. He, he's grown up in the finance space. Uh, he's founded a company called Transformative CFO, and his job is to help CFOs uh, lead transformations in their organization. So we'll we'll sort of take more of a finance angle to transformation, although most of the lessons we'll get to are going to be relevant to any sort of digital transformation. And then last but not least, we're going to play, uh, Kyla, your choice or your third of three choices of your top three favorite interviews for 2023 in a very timely seasonal one where we talk about the future of supply chain management and logistics with Blythe Brumleaf. Uh, who was on the show a few months ago. And uh, in that clip that we're going to replay for you, uh, it's very relevant and timely given that uh, seasonality is something we talk about in that interview. And seasonality, of course, is something that's very important at the end of the year with end of year holidays throughout much of the world affecting supply chain. So be sure to stick around for that third segment later in the show. But before we get to our guests, let's uh, talk through some of these hot topics you've got for us, Kyler. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with kind of the lens of digital transformation at PepsiCo. So to just give you a little background on anyone that doesn't know, they are going through a digital transformation. They actually brought in a new CIO as well to kind of lead the um, lead the team that's actually from uh, a digital transformation background. Uh, so definitely an, a more modern C CIO. And so basically what the company is doing is they're working to refine data analytics um, and deploy 
advanced manufacturing using IoT devices, as well as AI-enhanced robotics. Uh, a lot of smart manufacturing, smart floors, like we've seen uh, in other in other areas of digital transformation and in manufacturing. Um, and and one thing I wanted to talk through that they've found success with is specifically the use of upskilling their workforce for the future of digital transformation. And just to share some, some baseline metrics, um, the digital overhaul of PepsiCo's business processes and operation has definitely contributed to the company's growth, which was um, the expected growth in 2022 is um, 12%, which if you remember in food and beverage, they haven't really had a huge shift specifically with the pandemic and, and challenges in manufacturing there. Um, but it's something that they've utilized this new technology to move into more of a high growth model. Um, so some of the questions that they've found in going through the digital transformation is just the overall sustainability and viability of long-term automation within its current roles, within the organization roles and responsibilities. So what they did is um, instead of going through a large layoff or a huge restructure, PepsiCo, which employs about 300,000 workers across the globe, is transforming all of its human capital into a digital era. So they are actually launching PepsiCo Digital Academy, which provides employees with a foundational understanding of the value of data analytics and how they use it in their day-to-day -day basis. It launched last year, and over 30,000 employees have participated in the digital training um, with almost um, 150,000 views on the digital training content. So it's almost like user adoption on steroids and taking it to the next level of upskilling employees. And they found a lot of success with this in just overall growth um, from a, you know, a, a baseline ROI perspective. So wanted to get your um, your thoughts on that and and really understand from a, a next level of utilizing your existing workforce in the transformation to create efficiencies and then also basically overhaul your entire culture into more of a, a digital native um, opportunity. Well, I think it's super fascinating, especially for an organization that has 300,000 employees, that's always going to make things a bit more difficult and you're going to have more headwinds typically in a larger organization like that. But I think it's great that they're thinking about um, just changing the culture and upskilling. I'm a big fan of internal upskilling, not only because it, you know, it, it helps develop your employees and, and gives them a, a longer term career path, but also because for organizations going through transformations in general, it, it makes them more self-sufficient and they have more ownership and more control over the project. And, and the less upskilled a team is or the less sophisticated a team is in terms of understanding operations and business and transformation in general, the more likely are, are to fall into the trap of um, outsourcing or having that outsource mentality if, if you don't have the right skills in-house. And so you want to find that right balance. You can't be an expert in everything. You oftentimes do need outside consultants. And it may sound strange, us being consultants, for me to say, don't become too dependent on consultants. But that's definitely something that uh, organizations like Pepsi or any any big company or any organization for that matter needs to be mindful of. So I think them having that upskill mentality um, is, some, is something that will probably serve them well. Uh, sounds like a pretty big transformation, though. A lot of a lot of moving parts to that transformation. So I'm curious to I'll be curious to learn more over time. You know how that's structured and and how that how they're how they're managing that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So their their new CIO is actually from Accenture. Um, so she came over. She was um, the chief data and analytics officer at Accenture and, and moved to PepsiCo. Um, so obviously to drive that initiative. They've been involved in the transformation for five years. Um, I couldn't find a ton of information on systems or other like real tactical approaches, but sounds as though they're really taking um, a people first approach and investing a lot into that user adoption and change management overall strategies. Uh, so definitely something that is good to see on a high level from a large brand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's something to keep an eye on over the next few years. I assume it's not going to end anytime soon and it'll be an ongoing <laughs> journey, but uh be interesting to learn more as yeah. they continue. Absolutely. I, I feel like I my spidey sense senses a video. Yeah, so great. in the future from Eric. Good idea. I'm taking notes right now. <laughs> there you go. Um so the next thing I wanted to talk about today is the idea of network transformations. So a lot of what we talk about is digital transformation holistically. Um, but when we when we look at a network or a network of operations to modernize and really create an intelligent, healthy business through technology, networks have become something that is no longer a, a real nice to have, but a must have and a, an efficiency model that um, is needed. So I have five strategies here that I found um, from an article that I wanted to share to unleash network transformation and kind of get your more technical idea of of what it looks like to transform your your network. And and basically what we're talking about here for some of our, our not as technical um, listeners, because I'm not as technical, but we're looking at a really a new digital infrastructure stack that's completely overhauling existing infrastructures or, or infrastructures and disrupting operations to create growth and to stay competitive. And that's really the point of this article is now a network transformation or a sophisticated digital operations network is absolutely needed to be on the cutting edge of staying ahead of, of a competition or a competitive advantage. And it, it also is the catalyst to growth, which we know a lot um, about in the use of emerging technologies and being able to actually leverage them within the business environment. These types of infrastructures and foundations are needed. So the first one is advanced operational flexi flexibility with private 5G. Um, so they argue there's really no alternative to um, private 5G for low lat latency, f high speeds, and connectivity um, within critical enterprise operations. Um, the next is increased responsiveness with edge computing. And we've talked a little bit about edge computing, but basically edge computing um, brings the, the best decision-making capabilities um, to the point of the digital interaction. So it's the point where the data is captured and then how it's reported uh, throughout the organization. Um, improved scalability with cloud networking. Uh, so when we, we look at digital transformations, moving IT assets and networking to the cloud, which we talk a lot um, through either private or public cloud. And then um, build security. That's obviously a huge one to be able to understand the, the security openings or any sort of risks involved in networks. Um, and then last is to increase performance with AI operations and management. 
Uh, and again, that goes back to that holistic operations management with predictive maintenance and things like rapid reconfiguration capabilities. Uh, so a bit more technical than we, we really go, but the goal of this overall article is saying develop a network transformation plan. And that's really what I wanted to get your insight and feedback on because it sounds like gone are the days of kind of a more siloed, not connected network. And we see that in the same with systems in that interoperability piece that we talk a lot about. So wanted to get your feedback on on if you think that that's going to be a main trend or if it already is going forward in, in what you do with clients. Yeah, it, it, I think it will be. And it's a good reminder for those listening that might be thinking, you know, because I'm moving to a cloud solution, I don't need to worry about um, infrastructure or networks. And the reality is you do, especially if you have operations that might be dispersed throughout throughout the world or in, in remote parts of the world where internet connectivity, for example, is not is not that great. I mean, you need to be looking at the overall network of your, your infrastructure to make sure that it, it can enable some of the cloud technologies that you might be deploying, assuming that you're deploying cloud technologies. So I think um, that's first and foremost is a, is a reminder that you do need to look at that that piece of it. And also, you know, it's important to understand sort of what you have in your current landscape before you go into a transformation. A lot of times when we're helping organizations with their implementation planning, or even before that, when we're helping them select the technology or technologies that are going to be the best fit for their organization, a lot of times they don't fully understand what systems they have, which sound may sound bizarre, but a lot of organizations don't have a handle on what, what all is out there being used, you know, including those, you know, below the radar, uh, black market sort of uh, systems that that weren't approved necessarily by corporate, but someone went out and you know bought some sort of technology, or even just spreadsheets and lo- you know information being stored on local machines. Just understanding where all the data is, where all the systems are, what systems you have, what the inventory is, as well as the infrastructure and the network, and understanding the big picture of how you're going to replace that. That's all really important. So I think it's something that will continue to be a, a an emerging trend as the uh, as transformations continue into the 2020s here. And what do you think about kind of the the private 5G or even the private cloud idea? I know we talk a little bit about that. Do you think that will kind of be more mainstream as we see that migration really become more sophisticated? I think so, especially for differentiating competencies and business processes within an organization where they they may not want to water down their competitive advantage in the name of a SaaS or a, a public cloud sort of a, a multi-tenant scenario. Um you know, I, I know SaaS providers like, uh, you know, system provide or software providers that are SaaS will tell you, you know, no, SaaS is more scalable, SaaS is cheaper or whatever. That might be true, but it also might completely undermine and water down your competitive advantage, in which case a private cloud gives you sort of the best of both worlds where you're still leveraging the benefits of cloud, but you're also having the benefits of having your own your own instance, your own, your own systems, you can do whatever you want with. You don't have to worry about the fact that it's SaaS or multi-tenant or in other words, being used by other organizations in that same capacity. So, um, so yeah, I think it's, it is something that's, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of. And I think I see a lot of situations in the, in the world where organizations should be, you know, maybe looking more at private cloud instead of just multi-tenant SaaS or public cloud. Yeah, definitely an, an interesting um, consideration when going through the evaluation process and something that a lot of times, you know, we, have, we haven't discussed in the past, but is becoming something that is absolutely a necessity of that 
total network operating model within an organization um, because you know we know technology is is truly the backbone of business operations um, now. So definitely a, a very interesting time to be in the space. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about future work predictions for 2023. Um, so this is from the International Data Corporation. And they recently announced their future of work predictions for 2023 and beyond. Uh, so this overall um, study utilizes trends in the marketplace. And they they made 10 predictions of work and its overall framework for technology-related initiatives in the years ahead. Uh, so I thought we could go through those um, and then talk about a few that stood out to us. Um, but I want to sure. read each one because I do think that they're really interesting um, observations. And they they uh, they focus on IT, HR, um, other line of businesses, decision makers, and influencers in technology. Um, so prediction one is to address health, sustainability, travel, and other disruptions. 30% of organizations will adopt third-party metaverse conferencing tech solutions by 2027. Um, prediction two is by 2024, the business developer role will be obsolete with more than 60% of enterprise training and support businesses using their own applications and automated processes using low code tools. So very similar to that user adoption that we've kind of seen Pepsi moving towards a little bit in our first example and case study. Yeah. Um, prediction three is Driven by skills shortages, CIOs that invest in digital adoption platforms and automated learning technologies will see 40% increase in productivity by 2025, delivering greater speeds to enterprises. Um, by 2024, this is prediction four, um, by 2024, organizations deploying employee micro-monitoring measures, camera and keyboards, will see a 20% decrease in actual employee productivity. <laughs> Interesting. So it's going to backfire is what you're saying. Yes, I guess that big brother approach, I guess, is is not going to work out for them. Um, but who knows? Um, yeah. Prediction number five is, is companies that deploy reactive and tactical hybrid work models will see a 20% revenue loss in 2024 due to job attrition and underperforming teams. What's it called? Reactive? What? I missed that. You're really going to make me say it again? No, I'm not. Yeah, or, yeah, or Companies that deploy reactive and tactical hybrid working models. So to me, that means that it's, it's not strategic. It's more oh, reactive. I see. Um, then, and it is, and, and anyone else in the comments right now, if you feel like that's a different, um, in a different, and just in the comments in general, if you want to tell us, you, you know, your predictions and, and interact with, with us too. Um, but by 2022, due to job attrition and underperforming teams, they'll see that 20% revenue loss. Interesting. That's a pretty big, uh, pretty big impact. Negative yep. impact. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Um, and pretty staggering. And we can talk about them when we're all done. I'll keep going. But, um, 
By 2025, organizations that have created dedicated hybrid security policies and developed a culture of trust will be three times less likely to suffer a security breach. Okay, that one makes sense. I kind of see there where they're going there. Prediction number seven, almost there, team. Hold on. <laughs> um, by 2024, companies offering frontline workers democratized access to digital collaboration, process automation, and similar tools will see a 20% increase in revenue due to improved productivity. Okay. Um, prediction eight, and you can tell an academic wrote this because they're really, uh, my vocabulary would, is really on the that's high side. Why do you say that? Because I was just going to say, who wrote this? It sounds very academic. It, it, that's why I'm, I'm having trouble tracking some of it because it's so I, a lot of buzzwords, yeah. a lot of academia, right. but it's still interesting. So prediction number eight, holistic and integrated analytics with an intelligent digital workspace, they call it IDW ecosystem, will drive 70% increase in business outcomes for adopters by 2026. Hmm. Okay. Number nine, effective blurring space and place by 2025 65% of companies will consider online presence to be a partial in real life access access to their engaged workforce. So I think this is a very, because I read this one like four times, a very fancy way of blurring the lines between space and place within metaverse um, type of being involved and engaging in your work. It, they, it's in real life is their quotes. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds a lot like that first one you mentioned that was yeah. metaverse. Yep. And prediction number 10, by 2024, 55% of C-suite teams at a global enterprise will use intelligent space and capacity planning technology to reinvent office locations for gathering, collaborating, and learning. Hmm. Another metaverse-ish yep. sort of angle there. Um, they, they seem to be pretty pretty keen on the future of, of metaverse and, and some of the physical and uh, augmented reality or, or mm -hmm. digital experiences kind of combining those two worlds. I think they might be a little aggressive in their expected time frame for when, yeah. you know, cause a lot of them were like 2024, 26, 27, that seems pretty early for me to, to see that, you know, actually taken hold. Um, I think it might be further out than that. I also think some of the one thing that jumped out at me is some of those use the word staggering on that 20% revenue drop for what was it for yeah. organizations that don't. There, yeah. There were a variety of 20, 20% revenue loss or revenue um, increase too. So um, I don't know the, the actual data behind that. Um, but yeah, that is, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. That's the, it seems, it seems, it seems, exaggerated in my opinion i have no again i don't know either where the data came from or obviously it's a prediction so there's no i can't imagine there's actual real, real data to support their hypothesis here other than just looking at maybe historic trends or whatever but um yeah it's very interesting i mean i, I think uh, some of these predictions when you get out there and look at um you know look at some of these really cutting edge and bleeding edge technologies it's really hard to make predictions on them because half of these, half these technologies might be obsolete. You know, they might not ever catch traction or might disappear. We've seen that over time. And 
you know, there might be others that where they're right and they are going to have a material impact on organizations. So it's very interesting for sure. Yeah. I think there's a few in here uh, when you kind of wade through all the fancy language that I probably butchered. Um, you know, there's a few in here you can really pull out. I think prediction number three, specifically um, CIOs that invest in digital adoption platforms and automated yeah. learning. I don't know, again, that 40% increased productivity. That's a lot, just depending on the size of your organization. But I do think that that will be a main trend. I know you talk about the importance of, of digital adoption platforms and user adoption strategies going into specifically digital transformation, but just creating that more digital culture. I think that's definitely a a big one as well. Yeah, I agree. That, that is a, re a very relevant one. I think mm -hmm. I, I like the ones that are a little bit more tangible, like Me there's too. something tangible now that you can see and and. Tech or digital adoption of something. There's tools out there now that are gaining traction pretty quickly. They're not, they don't seem as far-fetched as some of the other ones. Yes. And then prediction number six, I think is, is um, definitely a, a real trend that we'll see um, by 2025 organizations have created that have created dedicated hybrid security policies and developed a culture of trust. I think that culture of trust really hits home in explaining the importance of the employee level cybersecurity and creating that ownership is going to be huge for companies um, to lower and mitigate any risks around security breaches. So I think that's a, a good one too. Although I will say you don't want to create too much trust because if you're too trusting, that's how you get into cybersecurity breaches or phishing scams or whatever. So um I think it's a double-edged sword in some ways. You always got to go to the dark side, don't you? I know. Yeah, the, the pessimist in me. <laughs> Just joking. No, absolutely. Um, definitely a good thing, um, but curious to hear from our audience. Um, so if you did have any um, predictions that you feel like really resonated with you or something that you've heard kind of as dialogue in the industry marketplace, please share. I think these are, are always interesting to keep um, a pulse on. And it is, again, um, the international data corporation, the DIC that put out this study. So data-based um, as well. So, uh, but all good things, I mean, to kind of start going into 2023, very timely um, right now to be able to understand what we're looking for as far as the the future of the workforce or the future of specifically technology in, in work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'd also be curious to hear in the comments below uh, if what your thoughts are on some of these metaverse related predictions. You know, do you think those are going to be real? Are you seeing maybe some use cases in your own organizations? Or if you're a consultant, maybe you're seeing some some use cases there. It's it's one of those fascinating areas. And obviously, these authors of this study are semi-fascinated by it, too, because they, I think three, at least three of the 10 predictions are somehow related to metaverse and augmented reality and whatnot. So I'd be curious to hear the audience's uh, perception or opinion about metaverse and where they think that's going to go. Um, so good predictions. Well, that's a good, it's kind of a good lead in here as we close out or start to close out 2022 is to look at 2023 and uh, where the future of work is headed. So that's super interesting there. Um, well, good. Well, thanks for those hot topics there. We're uh, going to shift gears a bit and uh, we've got two guests coming up on the show. Uh, first, we're going to have uh, Chris King coming up next, who is with a company called Transformative CFO. And uh, he's going to talk about finance transformation versus digital transformation with me. And uh, we're going to dive into that discussion. And then later in the show, we're going to have Blythe uh, Brumleaf, who's going to be on to talk about the future of supply chain management and logistics. And uh, we'll talk about seasonality and some other uh, relevant topics as it relates to supply chain management here at the end of the year. So stick around for that as well. But we'll have Chris King talking about finance transformations, um, 
first. And But before we do that, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 98. You can find new episodes of our show every Wednesday on audio podcast pl platforms throughout the world, as well as LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, where it streams every Wednesday. So be sure to check us out there. And you can also go to our YouTube channels to go back and listen to past episodes of the show. And of course, if you're listening on the audio podcast, you can access those historic episodes as well. So I'm excited for our next guest. He's actually a, a former client of Third Stage. He was actually uh, one of the very first, actually, he was the very first client. He worked for the organization that was our very first client um, as Third Stage back in 2018 when we started the company. So I um, actually didn't make that connection until just this moment. I didn't even think of that when, when, when I invited him to the show. I was uh, I knew him as a previous client. He's become a, a, a friend over the years and uh, someone I, I admire and, and enjoy working with. So I thought it'd be good to have him on the show. But uh, with us today is, is Chris King, who's the CEO of Transformative CFO. Uh, he's also the, the founder of that company. And we wanted today to talk about a CFO's perspective on finance transformations versus digital transformations. So Chris, thanks for being here today. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me on your show. And thanks for everybody joining us from all over the place. Uh, for me, it's early morning. Hopefully I'm awake enough. I know for some of you, it's evening. So. Yeah, Chris is. Uh, I was telling Chris before we got when before we uh, went live here that uh, he's the first guest that I've had on this live stream that's on the Pacific U.S. Pacific time zone, which makes it very early for him. So thank you for being here. You're our early, you have the distinct pleasure of being the earliest uh, person, <laughs> earliest morning person and guest on this on this live stream. All right, glad um, to be. Yeah, thanks for being here. And, and tell us a little bit about your background. I, I mentioned that you're a CFO, you're the founder of Transformative CFO. Maybe tell us about your background and what Transformative CFO does. Yeah, uh, thank you. There's uh, kind of three areas for my career, I think, where finance transformation has evolved for me. I started really most of my career I've spent as a CFO or other senior finance executive where I've gone in and inherited teams that I sometimes felt were not everything they could be, and uh, I felt could operate at a higher level, and I led them through a transformation to just really um, get to where they were 
doing their best work. In my most recent finance executive role, I had the luxury really of being a VP finance transformation where I could really focus on that. It was a, a large organization with a finance team that was spread between the US, Europe, and Asia. And uh, it was a multi-year effort um, to really focus on that. And in that role, I really felt like I was coming up with a strategy for finance transformation, coming up with principles for a finance transformation and doing something that I felt was uh, repeatable. It was very successful there. And when I left there, I started just writing about it at transformativecfo.com as kind of a blog site. Um, as I was thinking through the, the idea of kind of going in and, and becoming a consultant. And I've now done that and created uh, Transformative CFO LLC and starting to serve clients. And just really, I'm, I'm interested in just sharing this stuff as I'm, as I'm doing with you, or with you today, because I, I feel like it's really something that can impact company performance by impacting finance organization performance. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it's it's probably worth noting that's how you and I met was when you were in right. that VP of finance role, you were a client of, of third stages and that's how you and I got to know each other. And exactly. now you're now you're a consultant as well, uh, focusing <laughs> on the on the on the finance transformation uh, sides of things. So you you've had just to clarify a bit about your background, you've had roles that are focused on finance transformation like the VP of finance role you just described, but you've also sort of been in that um, frontline finance a CFO or other types of roles as well. Is that right? Absolutely. I've been a, a CFO of both uh, publicly traded companies as well as startups. I've um, been global uh, controller, I guess, was chief accounting officer for uh, a New York stock exchange company. So I've really seen kind of that, that heavy socks environment, that more innovative startup environment and, uh, you know, a lot of stuff in between. Great. Great. Well, good. Well, good to have you here. Um, before I jump into the, the initial questions I have, and again, any questions from the audience, we'd love to hear uh, questions you might have for Chris and I as we go here. But just want to turn to the audience here. Uh, thank you for those that chimed in on where you're from. We have people joining from Denver, Grand Forks, North Dakota, Orange County, California. So you're not the only person uh, from California that's up bright and early here today, Chris. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe they can commiserate with you. Um, Austin, Texas, uh, Hereford, UK are just a few examples of where people are joining from today. So thank you for um, chiming in on, on where you're joining from today. Um, so I guess just to start the conversation and just to start to unpack this a bit, Chris, um, what are the major differences between you know, finance transformation and digital transformation? To me, they sound somewhat similar and in many ways they are similar, but how would you describe the similarities or differences between those two terms? Yeah, I mean, probably you have to first acknowledge the fact that both digital transformation and finance transformation mean different things to different people. And um, they're, they're big buzzwords that are out there uh, quite a bit. I think in your practice, you've done a really good job of emphasizing digital transformation as being about more than just technology and focusing on people and process and change management. Um, and that's, that's one distinguishment, because I think you could look at some people would call finance transformation simply a digital transformation of finance. Some people think of digital transformation of taking products and services and making them digital for the first time. Others would say, you know, it's, a, it's about implementing technology that changes your operations or, or both. Um, so finance transformation, I like to think of is really covering people, process, technology, data, and information to really make the whole finance organization better. I would suggest that really adding technology is something best done at towards the end of a finance transformation when you've done some of the other work. Right. And yeah, that's a great point. So it's more of an enabler um, of doing some of that, that other work. Um, what are, 
when you think about finance transformations and some of that other work, some of that pre-technology work that you're talking about, you know, what are some of the business benefits that organizations oftentimes realize from finance transformations? And then we can kind of come back to, you know, what are some of those pre-technology things that we should focus on to enable the improvements? But what are the general benefits and, you know, business areas of improvement that you've seen that to be sort of the low hanging fruit, the biggest areas of value within finance yeah. transformations? So let me, let me address that a couple of different ways, maybe. The first thing I'd say is when you sort of define that finance transformation is when have I transformed, right? If I'm doing a finance transformation, when have I, find, when have I actually transformed my finance organization? And I'd say at, at that point, when, when each team within finance has a clear idea of what better means and they're able to measure it. So they've got some metrics that measure whether or not they're getting better. And then they have some initiatives that are designed to act on those measures, right? You now have an organization that really is focused on, you know, how do we improve? So then you get down to kind of what does better mean? And I think one way to, to get everybody uh, with the right clarity for sort of long-term objectives is to think about if we were to say we were better than another finance department or better than we were last year, what would better mean? How would you how would you measure that? And, and my sort of five items that I um, come up with there and, and think about is that you would either say that we have more timely information. So we, we do our month end close faster. Maybe we have more insightful analysis. So we can impact the business and its strategy a little bit better. Uh, we're more accurate. Fewer, fewer errors happening. We're more efficient. Just the operations are more efficient. We have less people than we used to, or we have um, more time spent on transformation activities than we used to with the same number of people, which is which is what I experienced. I'll talk about that. Um, or or it's more reliable. We have kind of better controls or less risk or something. But but really, you'd have to kind of be on on one of those measures. And so I think those are good like ways to anchor your kind of longer term objectives and then figure out what's most important. So those are kind of benefits generally. I think you could improve on any any one of those five. Um, to be more specific, in in my last rule, we saw a forty percent improvement in operational efficiency. So people went from spending all of their time doing their day to day job and getting their tasks done to spending about forty percent of their time on finance transformation initiatives and just things to improve it and move those metrics forward. Uh, we reduced overdue accounts receivable by trans and transforming that group by over 50%. We reduced the month end close from uh, seven or eight days down to four. So that gets into that more timely information. How quickly am I helping people to, to steer the ship? Um, on the FP&A side, we really we implemented driver-based forecasting and changed the way we were sharing information with, with BI, right? Um, and really drove a, a significant improvement in the performance of the company. So I think all those types of benefits um, and kind of whatever's most important, you're really creating this mechanism where whatever is most important to improve, we have a good structure and mechanism for improving it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And it seems like compared to other functional areas within organizations, finance is one of the areas where you have the most immediate tangible value that could be achieved, not just on the efficiency side, which, which, you, which you mentioned, but also some of the other things you mentioned, like, uh, you know, improving your AR and accounts payable and things of that nature, or maybe not accounts payable so much, but, but more AR. Um, yeah. And so that's, that has immediate cash tangible value that organizations Absolutely. can point to. AR is, is just, you know, this amount of capital that's sitting there not really doing anything. And, and we, um, completed this this effort and then brought in 20 million dollars that had just 
always been kind of wrapped up in AR. We decreased that. About half of that came from overdue and half of it actually came from, from the current and just collecting that even faster. And that's $20 million you can reinvest in new product lines and acquisitions and uh, yeah. other areas of the business, right? And start really getting a good return on that. Yeah, it's not a not a small number for sure. Um, yeah, and that's interesting uh, too because there's, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, the, the, the intangible strategic value, of course, as well but but what about um you mentioned that technology is an enabler and there's a lot of other stuff that you would typically do before putting technology in place to get some of these improvements that you talked about if you had to uh, just sort of estimate you know what what percentage of the value that you typically see in a finance transformation comes from technology versus all the other stuff operating model the way you organize um you know your future state business processes all that stuff yeah, I mean, I think every organization, unless you really have done it, unless you're you're really a lean organization or have that type of process optimization going on, there's probably a lot more opportunity to improve your outcomes through process improvement um, and through developing your people than there is just new technology. And there's a temptation as a CFO to want to just write a check to somebody and and just you know improve things. I'm not happy with what things are. Who can I pay, right? What, what technology system integrator? Who's going to make my organization better? And and it's really kind of a, um, I you know I've really seen no evidence that that works. Like the, right. the reality is, if you want to make your organization better, you have to lead it. You have to develop your people and and do the process work. We spent a lot of time on um, just kind of introducing lean and doing process improvement workshops. And we really took every process within finance, and we we do a couple hour. Uh, workshop where we'd map that out and we'd identify all the opportunities for improvement. And once you've done that, you've created this mechanism where implementing technology is going to be much more successful because I know exactly how my process works, what the outcomes are that I'm getting from it, and whether or not I'm happy with them, and what those roadblocks are. And, and if I can then identify what's really wrong with my existing technology at kind of a root cause, then I know exactly what I want the new technology to do that, that the old one couldn't. But I think it's more often that people are struggling with other problems. You know, it's not so much the capability of the technology that they have that's the problem. It's the way they've configured it, the way they've implemented it, or it's bad data, or, you know, it's just the way it's being used. A lot of times, I mean, the, the reality is, I'm sure you've seen this, where the the, the way that people have learned to use a system is not the most efficient way to do it. It's not the way maybe that the implementer intended them to do it, or you know, I, I would do these process improvement workshops where I'd, I'd bring in somebody from the IT side and the finance uh, system side while we were mapping through the thing. And they would hear how people were using it and what a struggle it was and how inefficient the old system was. And they kind of say, why are you doing it that way? Right. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you were dealing, you know, your most recent role before you started transformative CFO, the, the role where you and I met, you were involved in a, in a multinational finance group too. And that, that I'm, I imagine adds a, another layer of uh, complexity and opportunity too, because there's a lot of inefficiencies in terms of redundant processes and redundant functions and things of that nature. Right. Maybe talk a little bit about that. You know, what do you, what's, what should a multinational finance group and organization be thinking about that's a little bit different than a, you know, a single location one? Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the areas that we really focused on was just the harmonization of those processes. So we would do the same process improvement or process mapping 
uh, workshop in both the US and the UK. And then we take the process maps and kind of line them up and compare them. And we, we had this kind of open house for a while where we take all the process maps from the US and we put them on one layer in a conference room and all of them from the UK that matched up to it just below it. Uh, and we did the same thing in the UK and then invited people to go in and kind of look at it and come up with ideas they had for improving it. But our goal there was to identify those differences and kind of determine, is there a good reason why we have differences? In some cases, those two organizations have different stakeholders that, that have different requirements or the businesses are a little different and therefore, you know, there's a good reason for it. In other cases, and, and much more frequently, it's just two different people thought of the right way to do something long ago, and they've been doing it that way ever since, and, and it's different. But because it's different, you get away from the ability to sort of standardize it and optimize it and get consistent results in both places. You, you get a team that doesn't understand how the other team's doing it because they're doing it differently. It's much, much easier to collaborate with your colleagues uh, across the Atlantic if you guys are both doing a similar process in a similar way. And then there's, if they're, one of one of those ways is probably more efficient than the other and if you really get everybody open to learning from each other and, and really searching for best practices instead of defending the way they do it um, then you really you know start to get people kind of questioning gee man i really like the way they're doing that why don't we do that uh, and we saw yeah. a lot of that and, and yeah. ultimately we harmonized processes at least and, and in many cases we harmonized groups and created a global group with a single global leader out mm -hmm. of it even though what we started with was really a, a U.S. CFO, an international CFO, India CFO, and, and separate organizations within each. Yeah, I imagine that was a, a cultural shift as well. You know, is there, you maybe talk a little bit about the cultural impact that, you know, some of those major sorts of changes like that might have. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly... Um, you're creating a certain amount of disruption and uncertainty, which is something you have to pay attention to, I think, with, with your people. Um, but the more you start getting everybody the same clarity and alignment that you need to have a successful finance transformation, you really start kind of creating one team out of it, even though there's, there's multiple leaders. And you start saying, hey, we're, we're trying to do these five things, right? We're trying to make things more timely, more accurate, and more insightful. Um, and you get everybody aligned with this overall objectives and then they break that down for their individual process groups objectives right yeah makes makes total sense we're here with chris king talking about finance transformations versus digital transformations we've got a lot more ground to cover but first we're going to take a quick break you're listening to transformation ground control are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 98. I'm here with Chris King, and we're talking about 
finance transformations versus digital transformation. So let's jump back into the conversation. Um, here's a question I want to take from the audience here. Uh, Kyler on LinkedIn, and Kyler, by the way, is our, our podcast co-host. Um, and she asked the question of what are some key indicators that an organization needs to evaluate for process effectiveness? So in other words, like in your in this example, you were just talking about the multinational finance transformation that you were leading. You know, how did you know or how did you measure that this process is broken and we need to focus on fixing it? Yeah. Um, what's interesting about that is where, where we started was we went up a level from the process to just the process group. And we said, Let, let's organize the finance team according to these groups of processes. So groups like accounts payable or purchase, the purchase to pay process stream, right? All the people that support that are in the accounts payable process group um, or collections or cash applications or general ledger accounting, et cetera. We organized by process group. And then the first thing we did was really try to get clarity among that group, getting them in the room of what is it the company needs you to do? Like, why why does this group exist? What's your primary purpose and objective? So if you're talking about cash applications, right? The company needs us to apply the cash we get from our customers as quickly as possible. So the collections team isn't calling our customers about payments they've already made. Uh, and just getting sort of that clarity then says, well, what would it mean to get better? Well we would get better at cash applications if we had fewer days from the day we'd received it to the day that it got applied or we had less unapplied cash. And so you start getting those kind of metrics out of it as your kind of key indicators that you're going to improve. And then you start organizing yourselves around. So you've done your process improvement workshops, you've come up with some ideas for how you might make it better, but you start focusing on those of, well, what's gonna most impact my number of days to apply my cash or my amount of unapplied cash. And then you get into some of the other kind of lean tools like doing a root cause analysis of when we're not able to apply cash for a week, what is often um, the cause and how do we fix that? How do we address some of those issues? Right, right. So you're sort of doing that in parallel, you know, you're, you're, you're measuring and analyzing and improving, you're, you're, you're sort of doing that in parallel um, as part of the initial analysis, but also as part of the, the improvements themselves. Yeah, when, when you do that workshop, you come up with what I've kind of called, a, and I think it's a common lean term, IPOs, which stands for Improvements, Problems, and Opportunities, which means I don't necessarily know how to solve it, but I found a problem I want to go act on. And so we would map these things out initially on a whiteboard with just sticky notes of step one, step two, step three. And then we'd have a different color where somebody could say, hey, I see an IPO. I see something I think we can improve, right? I don't know what the problem is here, but I know it's not efficient. I've been doing right. it for a long time. And what really surprises you when you do this is how much the people who are responsible for the task understand how to make it better. But there's mm -hmm. things in the organization that are actually preventing them from just making those improvements themselves. Get a number of obstacles in the way there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point because I think a lot of times people overlook their own internal resources and the people on the front lines that are actually doing this stuff, a lot of times they they have the answer or they, they can come up with the answer. You don't necessarily need a super smart um, consultant or a, a super fancy technology to solve the problem for you. A lot of times it's a matter of facilitating and getting that knowledge out of the people that actually know how to how to do that stuff. Yeah. And what I say is the most important thing to do when you start a finance transformation is to create an environment where positive change is easy. Most organizations don't start with that. They really don't. There's a number of obstacles that keep somebody who has an idea how to improve their own process from doing it. One of those obstacles is they can't see upstream or downstream. So the, the visibility that the person doing the work has can be limited as to what happens downstream. So 
with lean, they talk to you about the voice of the customer and really understanding what happens downstream, right? And then proactively going upstream and saying, hey, do you know you're causing me some problems with the thing that you're doing? But most organizations end up, you know, fairly siloed there. And so if you can't tell what will happen if I push this domino and knock it over, right? And how, what other dominoes is going to hit? And what impact is that going to have somebody else? then you need help from somebody above you. But what usually happens is you go to your manager and you say, hey, I'm thinking about making this change. I think it could make it better. Just wanted to check with you if you knew of anybody that might upset, right? And a lot of times the manager will say, you know what, just, just this really isn't my priority right now. Why don't you just keep doing it the way you've been doing it? And if you ask that question and get that answer a few times, you, you kind of stop asking the question uh, altogether, right? Right, and then, yeah. And then there's just a lack of those resources where really what we're trying to achieve in a finance transformation. And so we've created an environment where leaders are saying, how can I help you achieve your result? I know that you're trying to improve these metrics. I know you have some initiatives to do it. And when you have an obstacle you can't remove on your own, that is my role as your leader. I'm going to move that, remove that obstacle for you. So come to me for it. That's a very different environment than, than most people find themselves working in if you're in one of these functions in finance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, makes total sense. And then uh, a grant from LinkedIn uh, makes a comment that's sometimes more exciting than the other type of IPO we've heard of. So he, he uh, seems like he prefers your type of IPO rather than the initial uh, public offering uh, going public sort of IPO. Right. Um, that, that one makes some people rich. This makes us all a little richer. Yeah, it's good. It's well, well said. Um, you know, I want to come back in a, in a second. I want to come back to um, some of the, uh, some of the, enablers of finance transformation, uh, including technology, but not limited to technology. And we're also, by the way, we're going to get to um, a, a question here I have in a moment about your 10 prin principles of finance transformations. I want to ask you a question about that because you've developed sort of your, I don't know if it's your top 10 list, but it's your your 10 principles right. for, for finance yep. transformations. And I want to come back to that in a minute. But before um, we do that, I want to answer or ask this question about technology. And this is from Ryan over on LinkedIn. And he said, what role do emerging technologies like big data, blockchain, and artificial intelligence play in driving financial change and innovation? Now, I know you said technology is just an enabler. There's a lot of other stuff that you should do first before you start putting technology in place. But when you think about big data, blockchain, AI, et cetera, there's competencies that might enable more improvement that you might not otherwise get if you, know, if you didn't have those technologies. So how did you see the role of emerging technology fit into into your transformation or, or were your improvements so fundamentally um there the improvements you wanted to make were so fundamental that you didn't really need to even think about ai and, and you know emerging technologies like that or, or how do you how do you find that right balance i guess is the question yeah that's um i i think it's a great question i think that one of the things we did um that I think was pretty effective was we really encourage people to think about the art of the possible and go out and kind of educate themselves. You've been doing this role for a long time. You know, you're, you're running the accounts payable group or whatever. Um, go out and spend a little time understanding what technologies are available, what other companies are doing in accounts payable, what solutions are out there, right? And what they bring so that you have that perspective of just how it, how it might help you. Um, I think some of these terms, blockchain and, and AR, are, are sexy, interesting terms. I think, how could that help me? The reality is most companies have so much just fundamental work to do yeah. to get to where they're making best use of their existing technology um, and they've optimized their processes that they really don't need to add that stuff to see a lot of improvement. However, once you've really 
identified exactly like you feel like okay i've optimized my existing my use of existing technology the best i can and i'm including i've optimized my process and i fixed the problems with my existing technology and i've trained my team and they know how to use it well um, and now I'm still, I'm trying to get something extra out of my metrics, right? I understand what's most important for me to improve, what the company needs my team to do better. Uh, I'm trying to do it even better. I think there would be some ROI if I brought in some of these state-of-the-art technologies and, um, and was able to make use of them to help me do my process. Um, and we did have, um, you know, Blackline uses um, AI technology. They're a, a kind of month-end close and reconciliation uh, software solution uh, and provider. And so, you know, we we had systems like that that were bringing those those latest things in. Um, we did a lot, and I'll talk a minute when we talk about the principles, maybe about around data and data improvement. Um, but we didn't have to really tap into big data to, to get where we needed improvement from. It was just structuring the company's data. Uh, right. Critical there, but. but yeah, it seems like organizations, a lot of organizations that we work with too have on one hand, you have um, sort of just the fundamental improvements that you've talked about, you know, let's just get more efficient. Let's just stop doing the same thing a million different ways and do things, you know, in a consistent way. And there's so much value right there. Um, that organizations can realize just from doing real basic blocking and tackling. So you've got organizations that have real basic fundamental improvement opportunities, and then you've got technology way over here. You know, that's it's uh, way ahead of where most organizations are. In fact, I would argue the technology is changing exponentially faster than organizations are changing. And that chasm between where we are today and where technology could take us is so great that a lot of times organizations just, they stumble and, and fall into a bunch of pitfalls along the way, or they try to overreach on, hey, let's bring in AI and big data and all this stuff when we haven't really even figured out the basic fundamental stuff. Like, let's just be more efficient. Let's just be more profitable and consistent and all that good stuff. So is that something you've seen as well? Yeah, I think it really just comes down to getting to the point where you know exactly what problem you're trying to solve and why yeah. your existing technology is a limiting factor in your improvement and, and you need something else. Thinking that, you know, we're really out, out of date. You know, we really haven't done any improvement in a long time. If we just had this shiny new toy, right, this best and, and um, top of the line kind of software here, we could fix all our problems. And, and the idea that, that the system integrator and the team putting in software is going to fix any major problems is just unrealistic. They just don't have the time to stop and say, hey, let's, let's get to the root cause of why you have bad data in your old systems. Right. And try to clean it up along the way. But if you haven't addressed some of those uh, root causes of those issues, you're, you're not going to have a successful implementation or you're not going to solve those problems with your implementation. But it's just very tempting sometimes to think, let's let's start this process with uh, a solution selection process. Right. Let's start with an RFP um, instead of really starting with helping each team get to where they are. And then then they really have the ability to come to you with a good business case and say, hey, right. here's what we've accomplished and here's why we can't go any further with what we got. And here's a solution we found when we were, you know, exploring the art of the possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, what about, um, you, you mentioned a moment ago, Blackline, you know, sort of a, um, a, a very targeted type of software. It's not trying to be everything in a finance group. It's, all, it's certainly not trying to be everything within an entire organization outside of finance. But it begs the question of, um, this is a question from Kyler on LinkedIn. 
how does this process work translate to new finance tech? What are your thoughts on full ERP systems versus best of breed in finance? So in other words, you know, do we, if we're trying to change our finance organization and, and drive a finance transformation, should we be looking at ERP technologies or should we be looking at more specific uh, point solutions? Does it just depend? I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts there? I, I think it certainly depends on uh, what problem you're trying to solve. You know, when I arrived at my last uh, engagement, I was really um, expected that you're going to lead the implementation of a new ERP system. And by the way, we've already hired, you know, the, the project manager and the program manager, and they're working on an RP and it's ready to go out. Um, and I kind of put the brakes on that because I, I was trying to get into what are the problems that that we have and and what are the solutions going to be and i found you know a new erp wasn't going to do that for a number of reasons and, and the number one was most of our people in the finance team weren't actually working in the general ledger system because they had a, a sort of industry specific um erp and then a sep that wasn't really good at general ledger stuff and a separate general ledger piece and and different items. I think when you look at kind of full ERP and do I do I get as much of my solution as I can from a single provider? I think that that reduces complexity potentially, and you know reduces the amount of integration points and the changes. And and then you have you know the trade off of best in breed on some stuff. Um, I think that when you've done the work I'm talking about, you're much a better able to make the decision about why the additional functionality of getting a best in breed solution in a particular area over using the one from the ERP provider um, is worth that extra uh, effort of integration or coordination, yeah. right? You can really understand what data will we have less access to uh, if we have these two pieces or how much work will we have to do to get those two pieces working together. Um, and the, the, uh, I don't think there's a single right answer for any organization. I think, you know, kind of you got to you always have to start where you stand. Um, and, you know, you're always starting with some amount of already embedded technology. And, um, you know, I think that influences a lot how you go about it. Yeah. And one of the caveats I'd add to what you said or, or just the counterpoints that the industry will often throw at you as a potential software buyer is if you're talking to ERP vendors about what you just said about the whole best of breed concept and how maybe it's worth the integration, it's worth the headache of having to tie together multiple systems, that might be worth it if it's driving more business value. But ERP vendors will most likely tell you that's a terrible idea, not because it is, but because it threatens their their model, right. their job is to sell you one system that does everything within an organization. If you go best of breed, that that is a challenge or that's a, a threat to them. So you just have yeah. to be aware of that counter messaging that you'll get in the sales cycle in the industry. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you've seen this too, but what I've seen also, sometimes these ERP vendors have acquired another solution yeah. in order to address this this area of the market that they weren't serving before. And it doesn't integrate any better with their system. than Totally, than yeah, I agree. That's a great point. I mean, you look at like SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, all those guys have gone out and acquired um, other solutions and you're essentially buying a best of breed system and, and the only difference is they want you to buy that best of breed system or solution from just them not other third parties but really just making sure you have a clear vision of what it is you need and like you keep seeing saying chris you know it depends on where the business value is and what you're trying to accomplish and you know let the technology fall into place behind that uh, first and foremost 
Um, what about these these ten principles of finance transformations that you have? Um, and I know we probably don't have time to go through all ten of them in great detail in, in, in the interest of time, but maybe you could cover some of the major threads or buckets that are covered in those ten principles of finance transformations. Yeah, thanks. I I um, started out by bucketing them into the kind of these five areas of the of the target operating model. So I have two principles about people, and two about process, two about technology, two about information, or two about data, and two about information. Um, and then breaking that, and it, it kind of worked out that way. I actually, you know, I had the opportunity in the last um, last rule to just experiment and and try out some things. And and honestly, I had twelve principles of finance transformation there, um, and they weren't so neatly structured. And and I kind of um, arranged them this way. Right. But I, I like the order in that you're, you're really starting with people and that first principle is about investing in staff and it, it really goes to the idea that the capability of a finance organization really can't be much more than the sum of the capabilities of the people in it. Mm. And if you can really start investing in their development and, and really being willing to say, I, this is going to be a place where you become more valuable in the marketplace. Right. I mean, that's that's kind of the deal. Right. I want to create an environment where you feel like you're learning a lot and someday you may leave my organization and take what you've learned and, and uh, bring it somewhere else. And that's OK. But I want to create an environment where we're continually developing and learning and we have a culture of doing that, because now I have people that are that are curious, uh, that are going out self-learning, that are thinking about ways in which they can make their area better. So it, that's that's one of the key ones in people. The the second one in people is one that you talk about and and provide services for, which is just um, change management. Really embracing kind of formalized change management. Uh, I love the ad car model and really looking at if I'm going to transform finance, that means I'm turning it into something else. I'm not. You don't use a term like transformation to describe a small change where right. it's slightly different. It's like we're trying to make the organization something different than it was. Um, so I really have to be thinking about change management. I'm trying to transform the organization by transforming all the people in it. And I need to know where everybody is kind of along that ad car model and, and where I've lost people, right? If, I, if I've lost them back at, at, and I know not everybody's familiar with the ad car model, but uh, first stage of that is, is awareness of a compelling reason for change. If I've lost somebody there, then it, I gotta go back and get them from there. And I, I won't have succeeded in doing a finance transformation if I've left people behind. Right. And then uh, on the process side, that's where I get into my kind of lean finance principles and this sort of organization around these process groups. So I create little teams around process groups and each team is trying to make themselves better with some goals that align to the overall finance goals. So we kind of use this three to five year objectives, those five areas for improvement, but now I need to come up with annual areas of focus for the finance team. And then each little team needs to figure out what that means for them and what they're going to go out and focus on in, in kind of this sort of annual uh, planning cycle. Mm. And then when I get to technology, I break that down between optimal use of existing technology and implementing new technology. And it's when and how do we implement new technology and this kind of concept of, of active sponsorship, which I kind of describe as the opposite of distancing yourself from a potential failure, uh, which I think a lot of executives do sometimes. You put the onus on the system implementer and the people who are gonna bring in new technology to make it successful. And as soon as things start going south, you see people 
you know, who are the executive sponsors of things, kind of creating a little bit of space between them and the project that's not going that well. Um, I think that really what that act of sponsorship means is that you're going in really mining for the potential problems that are going to happen um, and plugging those up. But before you get the new technology, you really have to look at optimizing your use of existing technology. Most organizations have some top of the line technology that they are not getting top of the line output mm. out of. Um, and, and you really have to also realize that for every technology out there, um, no matter you know, how good it is, there are organizations that have put it in very well and are using it very well. And there are organizations that haven't. Um, we were putting in a, a um, solution called High Radius Cloud Collections in that AR team. And one of the things I talked to the team about was of all their customers, 25% of them are, you know, would say they're in the top quartile of who's, how well they're using it and how effective it is for them, right? Mm -hmm. And three quarters of the companies aren't. And the ones at the bottom aren't, aren't getting a lot of use and they're thinking maybe I need a different solution. Right. Right. Uh, right. And there is more difference between um, the companies that implement high radius really well and those that don't than there is a difference between high radius and its competitors. And so you have to be pretty purposeful of have I implemented my existing technology really well or should I be changing it there? And, you know, we looked at uh, Blackline, Concur, Excel, Power BI and said these are all top of the line technology. I mean, Excel. It is the best spreadsheet solution out there, right? It's, it's not the best EPM out there, right? Right. So we use it as that, but it is the best spreadsheet solution out there. And yet, although everybody on the finance team uses Excel, there is not a single person on the finance team that would be more efficient and more effective if they knew how to use it better than they do, right? Mm. The skill levels among the people all vary, but wherever you are and however you got to where you are, you could improve it. And the barriers to improving your Excel skills are very low. You can go out and, and watch YouTube videos, right? You can read books, right? But you don't even have to spend money on a book. You certainly don't have to spend money on a course. It's available there for free. It just takes operating an environment where positive change is easy, right? Where I actually have the time to go out and, and self-learn. I'm not so, um, you know, Stephen Covey talked about sharpening the saw, right? It's, right. It, that's sharpening the saw stuff, right? If, if you're if you're too busy cutting trees to sharpen the saw, right? You're too busy doing your Excel work to learn how to use it better, then then you're not even making uh, effective use of it. So we really emphasize that principle a lot mm. first, and then by the time you're talking about new technology, you've really kind of addressed all these other areas. Um, on the data side, I kind of focus on both um, structuring the data well and getting the right dimensions for the data and, and, and thinking about the outcomes we want from it um, and how we improve that data structure. And then data stewardship and really getting people to understand, you know, that data is an asset of the organization. I need to own it. I, you know, I need to be a good steward of it. If I take a data set and I add bad data to it, I'm really impairing the value of it, right? And, I, and somebody needs to be responsible for where that's going. And then the information side is about just taking data and how do you make that useful and insightful? And I focus on two things there. One is driver-based forecasting, which is, could be a whole nother podcast, so I won't get into it. Um, and the other is just better use of uh, business intelligence tools and data visualization. Um, and that's always kind of low-hanging fruit that really has an impact on the organization, right? Your stakeholders really see it when you start 
providing uh, dashboards and, and self-serving uh, or allowing self-service of the information you're providing. We're here with Chris King talking about finance transformations versus digital transformations. We've got a lot more ground to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control episode number 98. I'm here with Chris King and we're talking about finance transformations versus digital transformations. So let's jump back into the conversation. It seems like those 10 principles of finance transformation are, are focused on um, really getting value out of what you've got, you know, organizationally, process-wise, technolo technologically, of course. There's also the technology piece and thread that, that could further enable the changes. But you, you made a really interesting point when you were talking about um, high radius about how I, and maybe you could restate it because I think it's a really, really good point. The, the part about how, um, would you say the bottom quartile versus the top quartile of high radius yeah. users, that delta is bigger than exactly. any improvement you might get from. Yeah. Using we spend a lot of time on, on sort of system selection, right. And comparing Remilia and high radius and which one can do what, and let me see a demo and, and let me look at pricing and everything. And yet, um, the, the pricing of this solution was relatively low for the amount of value that, that we got, right? And we brought $20 million in. Um, the, the cost mm -hmm. of the license can be the one wasn't very big. Both solutions were, were similar. Um, but the premise there was that if we can become one of the best companies at putting it in and using it, we will get far more value than if we kind of go along for the ride. We don't know where we're really trying to go. Um, or if you go find a better solution, because let's just assume there's a better solution out there, yeah. incrementally better than high radius. There's a better solution, it, in, unless you're really purposeful about making sure you're going to be in the top of the companies that uh, chose it, then I don't think you're you know, going to really realize that incremental benefit of one solution over another. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Um, and a great, great way to look at it, too. And a lot of what you're saying, too, with those 10 principles is... It, it almost feels like you're. It's it's an enabling an organization to get a blueprint in place for what the future state is going to be. And when it does come time to go find and implement a new technology, you've got that blueprint laid out, and you're going to be more purposeful, as you'd say, about finding the right technology, deploying the right technology, not overspending on a bunch of shelfware and stuff that you're not going to use, and making sure you're implementing in a way that adds a lot more business value. So I I, I like the way you've laid that out. Yeah, I mean, over the course of this transformation, we gained a lot of confidence that if we were to put in or, or wherever we put in, because we did put in new technology, but wherever we put it in, we would be, you know, um, really, we, we 
greatly improved our likelihood of being successful at putting that in and realizing it very well because we, we were much clearer about what it was we were trying to improve, uh, how it would impact the business and uh, what the problems were that we, that we had. And one of the things we did there was we had a, uh, an annual uh, finance transformation summit at the end of the year, we'd get people together. Uh, we had to do it virtually because during COVID, COVID. We, we actually did it in person the first time um, back in 2019, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the, the purpose of that was to kind of talk at a high level of the three to five year objectives for the organization. Right. And then um, what is it in this calendar year? What is the finance organization really most focused on and what's most important? And then working in those individual teams to come up with how they would connect their own goals to those goals and how they would identify what's most important for them. And we had this um, principle that came from the four disciplines of execution. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, it's a, a Franklin Covey um, uh, book by Chris McChesney came out. It's really about how to execute on wildly important goals. Um, but there was one piece of that that really stuck with me, which was this idea that people and teams could focus on achieving one to three goals at once and achieve one to three goals with excellence. And if they tried to achieve four to seven goals, they tended to achieve one or two with excellence. And if they tried to achieve more than seven, they tended to achieve zero. Um, and so we, we really tried to keep people to say, hey, the initiatives coming out of your team at any one point in time should kind of be one to three of them. Um, we're going to land one plane at a time. And but then over the course of a year, you might have more than that, right? Because you don't have to do them all at once. Um, so we do that planning at the end of the year. And then we had this um, four week cycle where every week we had a 45 minute meeting. And a quarter of the teams would report out for about eight to 10 minutes in that meeting. So hmm. each team was reporting out every four weeks. The, the meeting was happening every week and you heard from a fourth of the teams each week. And what they would report out on was their dashboard of those metrics. Of, you know, Here's what's most important for us to improve. We've got this dashboard showing the change in these metrics over time. So here's how our dashboard's going. We have three initiatives right now to act on these key metrics, right? And that we think will be impactful. And here's how they're going. And they'd give a little update on how the initiatives were going. I'd ask, how can I help, right? What obstacles are you finding? What barriers do we get out of the way? Um, and it would be an opportunity for just collaboration and sharing and hearing from each other. It would be an opportunity for celebration of the results and the successes that they were having. Uh, it was an opportunity for uh, for feedback and suggestion and an opportunity to, to ask for that help and support that they needed. And that's where I really feel like you've transformed, right? Everybody in the organization is part of a team that understands what it would mean to be better. Everybody's tracking the metrics that indicate they're better. And everybody has a plan and some initiatives for how they're going to act on it right now. And they've, mm -hmm. they've evolved to the point where we've gotten so much efficiency out of our day to day from the work we've already done that we're now able to spend 25, 40% of our time on these initiatives where without hiring any additional people, right? It came from our existing team. Right. Um, so it's not just, you know, e existing technology, but it's, it's existing team, existing technology, really optimize all that first. Now, by the time you go to write a check for somebody to bring in something new, you really know exactly what it is 
you need to do, right? Because sometimes those those three initiatives that we're going after, they say, we want to put in high radius, right? We've done the work. We think this is the next step that would be uh, a game changer for us. And it sounds like one of the maybe secondary, but really important benefits of this whole philosophy and approach that you're talking about is that it, it also creates a sense of ownership within the organization. So in other words, you're not just going to go outsource this transformation to a bunch of consultants and technology vendors. You're actually owning it. You're, you're the one defining what that blueprint looks like and what the business is going to be and how you're going to use technology, if you're going to use technology to drive right. any of that transformation. Whereas a lot of organizations that don't do the stuff that you just described, they end up um, being in sort of a helpless mode, you know, that it's a learned helplessness where they just, they need to bring in a system integrator or a consultant to come tell them how right. to do things because they don't, they don't know. Yeah. But what you're advocating is taking ownership. Maybe that may not be the first and foremost intent of it, but it is driving a sense of ownership and accountability within the organization as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause people are saying, this is, this is my mission. This is what, you know, what we are working on um, as as a team there. And, you know, you can outsource putting in new technology, right? You can hire system integrators and, and firms and, and go um, uh, write that check for that software, which you cannot outsource as a change in your culture to becoming right. a high performance culture where everybody is interested in learning and improvement. Um, you can't outsource the people development, the leadership of, of your team. And, um, yeah, once you once you really get that, then you really one of the, the lean principles is empowerment, right? You really empower the whole organization to understand what would make things better. And now when you're putting in new technology, it's not something you've decided to do to the people, right? right. We are getting a new ERP and you are going to be trained on how to use it. And it's going to go live for you and change your world on this day, right? Um it's more about, hey, we're we're trying to improve our function and we've decided this new technology. Now, obviously there is coordination. You put it on ERP, it's gonna impact a lot of people. It's not an individual team saying um, that they need it, right? But you should be hearing then from multiple teams saying, hey, it's it's the ERP that's slowing us down. Yeah, and I, I imagine there's, a, there's a, a few executives listening right now that maybe right. are a little bit disappointed. <laughs> I, I like yeah, Skyler's <laughs> comment here on LinkedIn is outsource leadership equals no leadership, which is yeah. a great point, very well stated. And I guess it sort of leads to another question here, which is, you know, a lot of executives listening right now might think, be thinking of themselves like, oh, shoot, I was hoping that these guys were going to provide me the answer of how do I could just outsource all this because this all sounds like a pain in the rear yeah. and I don't want to deal with it. But what you're saying is you can't really do that. You, you have to roll up your sleeves and, and take ownership of that. But what in general, when you're looking at a finance transformation, what what should the CFO's role be in, in particular? Like that that senior person within the finance organization, what 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 does that look like? How what should their expectations be of what they do and how they contribute and lead a transformation? Yeah. I mean, I think the the first one is alignment of the leaders and and managers. You have to make sure everybody's on the same page. I think that that's you know often one of the the challenges is this kind of lack of alignment. HBR ran an article a few years ago, and they were talking about the top problems with digital transformation, actually. But the number one problem was an unspoken disagreement among management about goals, right? And I think that's a pervasive problem. If you don't, if you're not explicit and you don't do a little work among the senior finance team to get good alignment, then you're going to end up with, you know, 
a lot of people sort of pulling in in different directions and um, a lot less progress. And so I think that has to be the role of the CFO to get his team or her team together and say, what is our um, what is our objective and and why? Both in terms of for the finance transformation and then just annually as as part of an ongoing uh, cycle, clarity of of objectives um, and just you know whether it whether it's my five areas and how you get better or something else or why you're choosing two of those over the rest of them or whatever, but you have to create clarity. Um, and as, as Patrick Lencioni says, you have to over communicate organizational clarity, right? You don't create clarity by saying it once or putting it on a slide in the slide deck at one point. So I think that's an ongoing role of the CFO to be over communicating that clarity, um, really empowering the entire team and people will not feel empowered unless they really hear repeatedly from the leader that it is their job to improve their job. Um, in fact, one of the obstacles I hear about people, why haven't you changed this before? You see the problem, right? We just mapped it, you came up with the IPO, you see how it could be better. And it's like, my job isn't to change it. It's, my job's not to improve it, it's to do it. The CFO has to allow everybody the, the room to do that. And part of that is creating an environment where you can make some mistakes. And part of it's, you know, creating an environment where positive change is easy. Um, I think mining for obstacles where support is needed. You have to sometimes ask the question. I see what you're trying to do here, right? In, in our sort of weekly check-in meetings, I'd say, you know, I see that you're trying to improve this and you're having some issues with upstream departments, for example. Uh, how can I help? Bring me, bring me to that meeting. Um, and then uh, really important for the CFO, I think, is being an ambassador for the executive team, the board, um, other stakeholders, people that might be impacted by a little bit of disruption, right? Um, if I go out there and put in a new accounts receivable system like HiRadius, it's going to automatically send emails to customers. Then there's a, a host of sort of salespeople and uh, customer relationship owners that need to know about that, need to understand why it's important. And I think the CFO can play a big role there. I, I had this luxury of being dedicated to sort of finance transformation. The CFO could worry about the board, the, the CEO, the executive mm -hmm. team, all that. I could worry about the internal organization. That's not always possible. And CFOs yeah. aren't always able to, to spend the time and really get into the detail. Um, but I think that uh, if you if you can't, then you, know, you either need somebody you trust who can do that, you need to provide those whatever five things I, I said, um, or you can get even more involved. And, and if your answer is, look, we're just, I'm just too busy for this. Who can I write a check to and do stuff? I would actually start with that problem. Like, right. how do you get yourself to where you can spend more time leading the organization well and less time dealing with the CEO's latest fire alarm? Yeah, and maybe you rethink what the scope and what the definition of the transformation for your organization is, because it may be that taking on a massive uh, widespread transformation is not realistic. You Maybe you don't have the capacity or the, the internal focus at the moment to deal with that. So you, you sort of scale back expectations, which isn't the end of the world. I mean, you could do an incremental transformation, even though to your point, the word transformation suggests that it's a, it's a massive jump, but yeah. maybe it's not if such any a massive one of these process groups. You could do a transformation of that process group with the right, you know, leader helping them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Now, so just sort of, to sort of bring this all full circle and maybe summarize here as we come up at the, the, the end of our time here, um, for those that are about to embark on or already in the midst of a finance transformation, 
And I suppose just a, a lot of what you're talking about, by the way, that we've been talking about throughout this conversation is we, we've been focused on finance transformation, but a lot of this is relevant to any sort of digital transformation as well. But what sorts of advice, you know, what are the two to three things you would leave organizations and team members with um, for how, how they should get started? What are the most two or three most important things to keep in mind as you embark on a, on a finance or digital transformation? Yeah, I mean, you know, I sometimes have said start where you stand, right? I said it earlier, you gotta gotta understand kind of where you are and and just start moving forward from there. Um, but I really um, like the uh, the um, Dr. Covey principle of begin with the end in mind. So try to, you know, understand where it is you're trying to get to, which is really sustained improvement, right? I'm really trying to create an organization that's just always able to uh, get itself better. I would, I would really think about that, you know, am I creating an environment where positive change is easy or is our culture or our systems is our hierarchy is something actually interfering with that. And you won't find that out without really getting in and talking to some of the people about their issues and, and what's kept them from changing it before. Um, and then really just empowerment. I mean, if you want to make a lot of progress, get a lot of people doing doing the work, right? And if you have good alignment and good clarity, then you can involve a lot of people in it. Right. Yeah, it's great. Great sound advice. And uh, just a kind of a closing comment here from Peter on LinkedIn. He said, if only more CFOs thought like this guy. So uh, thanks Thank for th- thanks for thinking like this, Chris. Uh, and this guy, by the way, is Chris King. He's the uh, founder of Transformative CFO. Um, tell us about the website. Um, what's the address that people can find you if they, or how, how can people connect with you and learn more about yeah, you? Um, yeah, the, the website is transformativecfo.com. Um, I've got the 10 principles of finance transformation there and some other articles, some uh, information about lean finance. Um, I'm going to be producing more there. And, uh, and now I'm just really just starting this consulting practice to um, kind of be the guide on the side for CFOs and, and finance teams that want to go through this um, and kind of train the trainer and, and help um, bring some of these things forward. And I uh, look forward to continue doing that and be happy to hear from anybody who's um, looking to get in this fight. Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for being here. Thanks to the audience for the great questions. Those were really well-stated well questions and some good good feedback there. So really appreciate all the feedback and we're going to unpack the conversation a bit more with Kyler and I here in just a moment, but first we're going to take a quick break. If you're listening to transformation ground control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 98. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday, 
on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. Be sure to check us out on social media as well. Uh, all the major social media platforms, we're posting videos, graphics, blogs, all kinds of stuff related to digital transformation uh, on a daily basis. So be sure to follow us on social media if you don't already. Um, so we just had Chris King on the show talking about finance transformations. Um, what were some of your takeaways from that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, well, it was uh, obviously a, a great conversation. It was funny. I was thinking the entire time, like, what a refreshing perspective for a CFO to have, because we have a lot of um, a lot of content around how challenging it can be to not only be a CFO but be involved in a transformation as a CFO, because you're not only um, you know responsible for the overall operations of a very complex part of the organization, but you're also responsible for how much you spend on the, the actual transformation project. Um, and so I was sitting there thinking, wow, what a refreshing perspective to hear. And some some of our audience were commenting on, I wish all CEOs were like Chris or CFOs were like Chris um, and thought about that in such an, an innovative way. So I, I think that that's, um, we talk a lot about the evolving CIO, um, but there might be something along the same thread there for an evolving CFO when it comes to a more technology integrated organization. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I actually didn't think that or I'd think of that when he was chatting or when we were getting that feedback uh, from the audience during the interview. But you're right. He is uh, he does think differently than a lot of CFOs. A lot of CFOs are, are in, in my opinion, at the risk of stereotyping and overgeneralizing. A lot of times CFOs are very black and white. Um, they they don't see the the gray. Uh, you know, and see the arts and the importance of the arts of transformation in the way that Chris does. And obviously, dollars and cents are important. The black and white stuff is important, especially when you start talking about ROI and total cost of ownership and business value and all that stuff. That's all really important. But to get there, to get that end result, you have to know kind of the nuances and the art behind it. And I think that's something that he did a good job explaining. Yeah, in particular, the fact that it's some of these intangible uh, organizational and operational things that really need to lead the transformation and then technology sort of follows behind that. And that's opposite. Of, that's entirely counter to the way a lot of CFOs think they want to lead with technology, um, go all in on a new technology platform and assume that that's going to drive the changes uh, for them rather than the way Chris was talking about it. So I think it's a great point. Absolutely. And and I, I love the way that Chris positions that as you have to get the fundamentals before you go out and get the technology. And many times, again, in a dollars and cents role, it's pretty simple. The technology comes in, it gives you an ROI, and you should see that in X amount of time. But understanding the holistic background around setting that up for success, almost staging it, um, and getting your, your operations efficient, looking at your processes to lean them out, to optimize them, are really that phase zero that we preach so hard to our clients. Just because It's very easy to get excited about new technology, but we talked kind of last week with Gassan about garbage in, garbage out, right? You could have the best technology in your, um, you know, your accounting department, but if you still have manual processes, broken processes, you know, inefficient processes, that technology is not going to be able to enhance or bandage any of those broken approaches. So I think it's so important that he says that and then also the maintenance that goes around that. It's not just a one-time audit of the overall organizational processes. It's a, a journey, a health check, if you will, um, 
annually or wherever it makes sense for your organization to really look at that um, and it's ongoing behavior within the organization, which I think is is so healthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he talked about that digital culture and, and just changing the culture of the organization. And I, I think that's a, another one of those gray area uh, intangible or, or soft sides of, of uh, change and transformation that a lot of CFOs miss. You know, they miss that really important nuance. Yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting to hear, you know, from the the finance side because I I feel like every organization I've worked in, with the exception of our amazing CFO at Third Stage here, um, but I'm I know right, I'm (laughs) terrified of the accounting department because you go up there and they're one of those departments, just like IT had been traditionally of you do it X Y and Z and that's how we do it and that's how we've always done it. So I can only imagine trying to go in to a group as a consultant, build that trust, understand those processes and showcase and you know, change that perception that you're actually going to enhance those. That to me is a terrifying concept. Yeah, I so agree. I can't, yeah. I can't imagine, um, you know, doing that so gracefully like you and Chris had kind of laid out how that, that looks um, not only in addressing resistance, but also addressing value in um, automation. We see automation come in specifically in the finance world and still making sure you understand the roles and responsibilities of the people that work there, not just the technology. Yeah. Yeah. And really designing and architecting what the operations, the technology, the people, roles and responsibilities, the org design, all that stuff is super important, especially if you're trying to drive big uh, efficiency gains like he talked about. Uh, especially if you're trying to drive strategic value. I mean, it, that's all stuff that comes from redefining your future state operating model as well as the organization and, and the technology behind it as well. Absolutely. Well, I, I think we should do um, a follow-up to that and because it seemed like we were kind of evolving the conversation into change management when we run out of time, which we always do. Right. But I would be so interested to hear specifically in – finance organizations, um, the challenges or the tactics around change management. Because we always, you know, we have a running joke of, you know, Bob and accounting with his spreadsheet. But the reason we have that running joke is because that's something we see all the time. Right. <laughs> so right. Um, so I'd love to hear um, that as a follow-up conversation with Chris, because it was such great insights in how you really create those fundamentals and those foundations to be successful. And that's so important because many times that's overlook, um, especially in fintech, when we talk about all types of emerging technologies. I love his approach of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Those are all cool. They're super great. But until you actually figure out how to have a healthy operating financial system then there's no point in looking at those any other technologies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's well well said. I'd love to hear in the comments too from the audience here of all those threads that Chris talked about. Is you know when you talked about operating model, um, the organization, the data, the technology, the information. You need know, to kind of talk through those major threads that he thought were so important in any sort of finance transformation or digital transformation in general. I'm curious to see what you think, you know, which ones you think are the most important or which one you found to be the most effective, uh, or if you have anything to add to his list, I'd, I'd be curious to hear that in the, the discussion or in the chat here uh, on this podcast. So love to hear your feedback there. Well, good. It was great to have Chris on the show. He was a first time, uh, first time guest. And uh, again, the first, uh, first ever client of third stage. So uh, I, I, I didn't mention that to him uh, in person as we were talking there, but, uh, it's certainly worth noting here that he was our very first client. So uh, it's good to have him on the show for, for a number of reasons. 
Um, so we're good. We're going to shift gears here and uh, bring on our next guest, which is actually a replay of an interview we did earlier this year here in 2022. Um, it's Kyler. It's your your uh, third of your top three uh, interviews of 2022. Now, do you have a ranking? Is this number is this number one, two, or three, or is it just one of three? Oh man, I feel like you've really um, you've really cultured me into the it depends so I cannot yeah. answer that question I cannot but these were my three favorite and I think three most relevant when it comes to kind of what we look at um, and the reason I picked it is we have we have the people side um, when we we talked with um, with Tim last week and then we had really the the metrics and analytics side to people management. And now you have more of the logistics side and understanding what that looks like. And I especially think that's important now as we go into a very timely holiday season and understanding the logistics behind what it takes to actually ship and supply these products um, as well to Santa's workshop, obviously. So. Yes, absolutely. For, for all the kids listening here today, without supply chain management, uh, Santa would not be able to bring you toys. Mm -hmm. um, although I suppose if all the toys are made at Santa's workshop, I guess, is there a need for supply chain management? Isn't Santa the supply chain? I don't know. I guess. You I'm, know, you I'm sound like my two-year-old and three-year-old. Like, I don't have all the answers, guys. You I know? tend Let's to think just... like a two and three-year-old. Um, <laughs> I, ask, I ask similar questions that a two or three-year-old <laughs> would. <so. laughs> um no, but I, I'm probably overthinking that. But um, so either way, what you're saying is uh, we've had about 50, 50 episodes this year mm -hmm. um, and more than that in terms of interviews. But, you know, if, even if uh, this interview is in the top three, it's easily in the top 5%, let's just say, of, in, in your opinion, of interviews. And this is Blythe Brumley talking about the future of supply chain management and logistics. We'll also get into seasonality and how to, how to uh, manage to seasonality, which is very timely this time of year. So we'll play you that uh, clip when we come back. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 98. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday, so be sure to check us out on a weekly basis. I'm here with Kyler, and Kyler, this is uh, your third of your top three favorite interviews of 2022 so far. So we thought we'd roll the clip, and then when we come back from the clip, we'll uh, talk just a little bit about why you like it so much and what some of the takeaways are uh, from that. So let's roll the clip here. This is Blythe Brumleave on the show a few months ago talking about the future of supply chain management and logistics. Uh, Blythe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And you pronounced all of that correctly, which is uh, very rare for, for people who interview me. I know, I know my name is challenging. I usually mispronounce names all the time. So I'm, I'm just uh, glad I dodged that bullet here today. <laughs> 
Well, thank you for being here. It's great, great to great to have you on the show. This is the first time you and I have chatted in a, in a podcast format like this. A really excited perspective and get your perspective on supply chain and logistics, which is something that you uh, touch on on a daily basis. But before I get into my questions and any questions from the audience, maybe just tell us a little bit about your background, sort of what how you came up in this space and, and also what Digital Dispatch does. Sure. So my name is Blythe Bremleve. I have been working in uh, logistics and supply chain for Gosh, a little more than 12 years or about 12 years now. I got started as a an executive assistant uh, working at a 3PL, an asset-based 3PL in Jacksonville, Florida, here in the States. And at the same day that I started that job, I also started a sports and entertainment blog. Um, so I was a former waitress that kind of got recruited to go into the logistics field knowing that I wouldn't have to sit at a desk all day. And so my biggest thing is I didn't want to sit at a desk all day. And here I am sitting at a desk all day. But my boss was a former truck driver who worked his way up in that company and, and bought out the rest of the ownership, became the sole owner of that company. And when he found out about my little side hustle with a sports and entertainment blog, he said, well, why don't you start doing that for us? And so I was handed the keys of the website development, design, and marketing initiatives for you know 140 million dollar logistics company um and i had really no idea what i was doing this was really early on in the social media days um twitter had just launched um i believe instagram was either had just launched or was right around the corner from launching um, we were also uh, very new or very uh, early adopters to the HubSpot methodology of inbound marketing, um, which I was really passionate about. I, I've never been big on like, you know, cold calling or cold emailing. Um, those always felt like, you know, sort of the easy ways to to get leads and to get, you know, qualified business. And so during our, our HubSpot initiative, that's when we were the second logistics company ever on the HubSpot platform. So this is like 2009, 2010, very early on in, in those days. Um, so I worked for that company for about five years. Um, unfortunately, uh, considering you know an asset-based company, that was also during the Great Recession. So during the recession, during the downturn, unfortunately, that company ended up closing down after five years, which was super heartbreaking. Um, and then so that sort of put me in a position to almost be like at a fork in a road and either choose to stay in this industry or to expand out. I chose to expand out. I went to a uh, media side of things. So I worked for a magazine, worked for a radio station, local TV, um, did all of those things mainly in the sports and entertainment sector. Um, so then I went back after a few years because frankly, you know, sports and entertainment, you know, money just isn't really there unless you make it super big. So I didn't really see it as a long-term career trajectory for me. Um, so then that led me to go back into freight. That's kind of the funny thing about working in, you know, logistics and the freight world is that it always finds a way to sort of pull you back in. Um, so I went back to work in freight and quickly realized that I needed to launch my own agency that, you know, I needed to be able to call the shots and, you know, make the decisions on where I think we needed to invest according to the attention economy. And so that evolved into starting a different podcast, um, starting, you know, video networking, um, not video networking or video creation that le leads to digital networking. Um, and then now I do it full time for uh, myself, for the business over at Digital Dispatch. So I help other freight companies build a better website. And then on the other end, I also now host a show called Cyberly 
for Freight Waves that appears every Thursday at 2 p.m. So I kind of get to blend both of those worlds and get to talk to, you know, cool people like you and, you know, meet all the rad people in, in the chat. Um, and really, I think that's the the beauty of the industry that we work in is that, you know, we're connecting the components of the components all throughout the world. And um, I, it's a new story every day. It's a new challenge every day. That's why I love this industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. It's a cool background too, because it's not, it's not just a traditional supply chain and logistics background. You know, that sports and entertainment piece that makes it uh, interesting too. I, I imagine that somehow influences or informs the way you the way you do your podcast and, and the other sorts of marketing type of stuff you do. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I think for a long time, B2B marketing has been incredibly boring. And mm -hmm. when you really get into the niches of this industry, it's anything but boring. But that's all you see on the marketing side of things until, you know, just recently, until, you know, within the last couple of years, you're starting to see a, a, a brighter light being shined on the real work that we do, whether it's from, you know, sourcing or procuring, you know, different components or, you know, uh, trying to um, connect with a port over in Singapore, like the, all of these things are just so cool. And now, you know, we're finally, we're just scratching the surface of highlighting those cool things that go on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've got a ton of questions for you. You, you sort of touched on a lot of questions. I'm going to ask you just <laughs> in that little intro though. So I appreciate that. That's super interesting. But before I sort of dive into these questions, I wanted to just turn to the audience really quickly and uh, just look at where people are joining from today on on the different platforms on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, we have uh, Jerry from Dallas, uh, Brent from Calgary, someone from Atlanta, Oman, Colorado, Paris, France, India, greet, uh, greetings from New Jersey, California, Italy, and just all over the place, Saudi Arabia and North Carolina. And That's India, awesome. By India. Yeah, so we're touching a pretty global audience here today. So thank you everyone for joining, especially those of you joining at strange times of the day for, for you or late, late. <laughs> I appreciate you being here today. Um, so I guess just to start, you know, I thought this would be a great sort of 20,000 foot flyover starting point for us. And then we can sort of dive into your background and, and your experience with supply chain and, log and logistics in a little bit more detail. But if we just sort of back up and look at, um, what 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 is logistics? I mean, just help us understand. Maybe we kind of know what it is, or we've heard the term, but just maybe help us understand what is logistics and how does it fit into supply chain management in general? Sure. So so supply chain is essentially the the bringing all of the components that you need together to build a product, build a solution, and then ship those items from port to porch. I heard that phrase recently, and I just love it from port to porch. So the supply chain is that greater initiative of bringing all of those components together, the component of the component. But then logistics is the transportation management. So whether it's land, sea, air, um, also the, the storage of those goods, so warehousing, that logistics is really the transport of those goods to get them where they need to be. It may be, you know, you need to get them to the, the business or you need to get them to the consumer, but the logistics is the transfer of those goods from point A to point B. Gotcha. Okay. So it's, it's, uh, so supply chain is everything really from getting raw materials to the manufacturing warehousing, um, the port to porch part of it is within that. And then so we're, we're kind of focusing within the logistics space in that port to porch space. And I hadn't yeah, heard that either. Well, yeah, it's, it's such a great phrase that I, I'm like, oh, gosh, I hope that, you know, I, I went and looked and to see if that website was actually taken. And it is. So unfortunately, <laughs> I could not claim it. Uh -oh. um, so no. shout out to the person who who did create it. But I think, you know, for for a lot of folks, they just see the goods around them and, you know, they never really paid attention to how they actually got 
to where they're at. And if you look around your room, which is something that, you know, a, a maritime is a, a perfect example of this where maritime shipping, you know, 90% of all of your goods, if you look around the room right now that you're in 90% of those goods were shipped on a cargo ship. And so for, for us to think about the complexities of how to get your product into a storage facility, and then from that storage facility to a container, and then that container onto a ship, and then the ship to, you know, another side of the globe, and then to unload it and to transport it to another storage facility, and then that storage facility gets transferred to another distribution facility. It's just, it's an incredible amount of work and software that is all involved in this process. Um, but the at the end of the day, it's still a lot of these transportation, you know, solutions that we have been using for hundreds of years, whether it's, you know, transporting these goods by by a ship or by a boat, um, or even some of the river systems, you know, that that, you know, canvas throughout the entire world. It's just so much going on that comes together in order to get the stuff that we need to, you know, buy off Amazon or to buy off of another provider and get it shipped to us in two days. There's a lot of things that go on during that process. Yeah. And and things certainly have not gotten any easier with the pandemic and the disruptions and bottlenecks to supply chains that happened as a result. Um, what, what are um, some of the ways that the logistics space has evolved in recent years, either just strategically and or in response to some of the impacts of, of COVID and the related supply chain impacts? So I, I think of this in, in two ways. I think from the technology or technology aspect, that's a huge one. You know, for the majority of the time that this industry has been operating, it's been, you know, sheets that we manually fill out. It's a bill of lading that someone physically prints out, someone physically signs, and then that bill of lading goes from one part of the world to the other. That part of the process has not changed, but the, the technology that's come into the space. And I think the data sharing that's gone on is incredible to see. And we're, we're really only, I mentioned, you know, earlier, we're only kind of scratching the surface on, you know, on the content side of things, but on the technology side of things, it, it, especially from data sharing, I think that we are really only scratching the surface, um, being able to, you know, save, you know, 0.5% on the cost of shipment for your goods is an incredible savings and technology can give you that. And when you're talking about, you know, maybe like a pointed, uh, a percentage point or even a half a percentage point of savings, you know, think about a, a giant cargo ship. It does, if they have a making, you know, maybe $2.7 billion in revenue for the year, that 0.5% is a lot of money that you can save just simply by adopting new technology, data sharing between different companies, um, allowing you know third-party vendors to you know act, have access to that data, I think is another advancement that I really never thought that would come to fruition. I still think a lot of companies are scared to share their data because it is you know proprietary to their company. But on the flip side, the the amount of benefits that you can get simply by data sharing, I think is incredible. And we're only really scratching the surface. Another big area that I think has changed is that the ability to network in a digital environment first. You know, when COVID hit, that was the, because if you think about it, a lot of our connections that we made were made, you know, going to trade shows, going to events, going to conferences. And when COVID happened, that just dried up instantly. And so we were forced to change our networking habits from the things that we were used to to an entirely new environment. So you've seen the growth and you can see, you know, all the people in the chat right now that are coming in from LinkedIn. LinkedIn is one in particular that just exploded as far as, you know, network conversations that you can have. You can 
have a digital handshake with somebody from across the world and then be able to eventually meet them at a conference, you know, later on, obviously, when things, you know, sort of settle down from, you know, the the, the COVID experience. Um, but nowadays, it, it's really quite remarkable to see that, you know, Apple and Spotify, they don't even technically have a supply chain category in like their podcast, or even like a, you know, a subcategory under business. But we still feel like there's is so much content that's coming out of these platforms. I saw a list the other day that now there are top 75 influencers in supply chain list. There's a top 60, you know, a supply chain podcast list. You know, these things did not exist two years ago. And a lot of those podcasts, honestly, are not very active anymore. But the amount of activity that we've seen since then has been just a dramatic increase. The 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 knowledge base of sharing of information is so crucial to this industry. We talked about, you know, data, data connections and data sharing, but also the information and the knowledge base and the experience sharing that's happening on social media, I think is another just, um, it's something that the industry has needed for quite a, a long time. And I'm glad to see it coming to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is interesting how, you know, once you start hearing politicians and mainstream media start talking about supply chain management, that's when you know it's sort of it's, it's it's a fairly big deal. And it was I remember right when the pandemic hit and just hearing politicians and people on TV talk about supply chains. I'm like, wow, I've never heard you never hear anyone talk about supply right. Chain. It was it was almost weird. So it's good that it's become front and center. And then you know, more recently, it's become front and center in a um, in in a less positive way, I guess you'd say, in terms of people concerned about the supply chain and rightfully so. Um, what do you think, you know, how do you think organizations are going to adjust to this, to this new reality or whatever you want to call it, even though I, I hate that term, the new reality. Um, but what, but what, how are organizations going to respond? How, how do you think they'll evolve their supply chains and their logistics, logistics function within that to sort of adjust to this new world we're in? So the, I would say that for a lot of folks, adjusting to the communication aspect has been uh, very challenging for them. These are folks who have never been used to being on camera, um, not used to doing something like this, where we're, we're going on live and we're talking about industry issues and how can we solve these complex problems. So I think that for a lot of organizations becoming comfortable with being on camera, executives becoming comfortable talking about, you know, not just you know, what's going on in their company, but the news that they may see out in the world, you know, maybe it's on freight waves, maybe it's on, you know, some other, you know, inbound logistics, some of these other, you know, supply chain focused media companies, maybe they see something there and they don't agree with it. Um, being comfortable sharing their opinions, not just in a boardroom, but in an online environment. Um, I think that that is still if you are an executive in this space right now and you're not doing that, you are missing out on a goldmine opportunity because that is the quickest way and the most efficient way to have, you know, these digital platforms work for you and sell for you and market for you 24 seven. You know, we can't, you know, that as, as think for a lot of folks, we can't, you know, we're doing this live stream for about an hour today. But afterwards, what happens with this live stream? You're going to take it. You're going to put it on a podcast. You maybe will take it and use social media clips to put out to your social media network. That kind of content works for you 24-7. And so for I think for a lot of companies, adapting to that evolving business model, learning the technology that you have to use, not just to keep your business running, but also to keep the messaging running, I, I think is going to be one of the bigger challenges that a lot of companies are 
still just very um, challenged by. They they um, they don't see the investment in it quite yet. But the ones that have over the last couple of years, they are reaping the rewards because the recruiting is getting easier, retention is getting easier, um, the ability to communicate with their team. They're probably you know for a lot of companies, you know, they might not be full time back into the office yet, but it's an ability to you know enhance those digital communications and supplement that communication until you're able to meet in person. Um, I think too, you know, we mentioned as, as far earlier with, as far as like the adoption of, you know, new technology and with adoption of new technology, I think that's another thing that's a big challenge for a lot of companies is that they see a lot of, you know, they're sort of as, uh, I guess, guilty of falling for like the shiny object syndrome, where they see like a shiny new piece of software, but they have no idea how the in the trenches employees are using software and getting the job done today. Um, so I think that, you know, it's great that we have all of this technology coming into the space, but how are you using that technology to make the end user or not really the, well, the end customer, of course, is going to benefit from it, but the end user who is actually using it on a day-to-day -day basis, I think there's definitely some room that needs, or some room for improvement that needs to be made there and, you know, to try to avoid that shiny object syndrome where you're just going to buy a piece of software and think it solves all of your problems when, you know, in a variety of different industries and aspects, that's just, uh, it's, it's, it's not the right way to look at it. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear your marketing slant, and I know that's your focus is is marketing. But marketing within logistics, uh, to your point earlier, you know, having that kind of focus and that sort of a spotlight on the marketing opportunities for logistics companies—that's just something that hasn't been that common in in the space. Because, like you said, B two B marketing has traditionally been pretty stale. You know, when you compare it to B two C and what some of the big consumer product companies do, so that's that's pretty interesting. Okay, we're here playing a clip of Blythe Brumley chatting with me about the future of supply chain and logistics. We're going to continue the conversation, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 98. My name is Eric Kimberling, and we're here with Blythe Brumley talking about the future of supply chain management and logistics. Um, one question I wanted to ask you that um, is actually not my question, so I will not take credit for it, but it's a really good one. It's from Sam Graham. Uh, welcome back to the show, Sam. He's a regular uh, frequent contributor to our, to our show um, from Spain, and he says, will reshoring lead customers to expect shorter delivery times? And will that lead to new logistics challenges? So maybe just explain what reshoring is, first of all. Second of all, is that trend towards more reshoring? And, and, and maybe even bigger picture, it's not. It, it's also the, the sort of nationalism that seems to be spreading throughout much of the world that I imagine is probably impacting supply chain as well. But how do you, how do you see that whole reshoring? What is that reshoring concept and how do you see it impacting logistics and supply chain? 
So for for reshoring, particularly when it comes to the U.S., because with the the U.S., it's we've spent years, you know, offloading our manufacturing process to other countries. And when you have a situation like that, you realize how quickly it can come. It it, it can become a, a national emergency. I'll use um, Puerto Rico as an example because Puerto Rico, I think, manufactures ninety percent of the world's um, IV bags. And when they were hit by a hurricane, I think it was three or four years ago, I think it was Hurricane Maria. When they were hit by Hurricane Maria, they all of the world's IV bags were the, the supply chain was just it just collapsed within a matter of days. And so I think what you're seeing is not only reshoring and bringing the manufacturing closer to the U.S., but also the distribution of it. You know, the, the idea that you can have the world's largest supply, 90 percent of IV bags being manufactured in Puerto Rico, the world needs access to those. And so I think that you don't even realize it until an emergency has happened. And so when you have an emergency um, come up like that and also, you know, obviously with what we've experienced with COVID, now there is that financial incentive. I think for a lot of businesses, they see a situation like what happened in Puerto Rico and they say, well, that's, you know, that's only going to happen, you know, once every handful of years. That's not something that we really need to be, you know, worried about over the long term where we need to make these massive investments to bring reshoring back over to say the United States or even, you know, in Mexico, which is a big winner post COVID. Um, that's where I think a lot of the opportunities are now being made is that you are bringing, you're realizing a lot of these business owners, they're being given, the government realizes it first of all. So they're giving incentives to these companies in order to bring reshoring back to where it makes the most sense where you can reduce those lead times where semiconductors is is one of the perfect ones right now there's you know having the world supply of semiconductor chips being made in taiwan has worked well for a very long time but all it takes is one global incident and that is shut off you can't use your phones you can't use you can't buy new phones you can't buy new computers um cars are sitting off in the lot not being able to be driven off the lot because they don't have you know this one component of a component and so that's where I think a lot of these businesses are now, they're realizing the national security issue that arises from not having multiple distribution or multiple manufacturing spots, multiple distribution spots, and being able to diversify. If you were going to war, you wouldn't have all of your warships in one port. You would diversify them because you learned after Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, we had the majority of our you know, naval, uh, in, naval and air fleet all located in one area and all it took was one strike and you're wiped out. So I think that you're starting to see a lot of these businesses. I think it started with the government being able to offer these incentives to these business owners to bring some of that business back to the states. So now you're seeing semiconductor chips or manufacturing plants going up, I think, in Texas and Ohio here in mm -hmm. the states. Um, you're seeing more manufacturing return to Mexico and being built up in Mexico rather than, you know, China and Vietnam. So it's a really fascinating sort of evolution of what it took to get the government to realize these issues to get then get create the incentives to make these businesses move their operations back because they were making plenty of money in these other countries what's the incentive to bring them back so you have to you know sort of it's these complex solutions to these complex problems and thankfully the government has started to recognize that and given these other companies the incentives to to capitalize on capitalism i guess is probably the right word right
Yeah, that's super interesting. And uh, um, I didn't I didn't realize that about Pearl Harbor. So I got a little bit of a history lesson in there, too. I didn't realize that was a, <laughs> a problem logistically with having all the all the uh, fleets in one one spot like that. And, and it is a good analogy or a good comparison to what you have to think about with, with supply chain, too. Um, and I think, too, um, I know one of the laws that the U.S. the United States just recently passed, the U.S. government, I believe, was to partially to invest in chip manufacturing in the U.S., knowing that we're too dependent potentially on other countries and there were shortages. And so um, it is interesting to see the government get more involved, not just in talking about supply chain management now, but now taking a more active role, for better or for worse, taking a more active role in sort of making sure that we're making these investments in, in supply chains and um, really diversifying, which is which is super interesting. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned that I think is a really important one, uh, you talk about how we spent years and years building this global supply chain. Uh, and it, you know, it's really started what in the eighties, maybe or eighties and nineties. It seems like is where it really started. The, the pendulum started to shift toward that whole global supply chain um, aspect with big companies like Walmart. You know, I know being a big retailer, they, they sort of perfected supply chain management back in the nineties and, and other organizations followed suit. So it's interesting that it's a really interesting point you make that you have say 30 years of this global supply chain that was built and in, in a blink of an eye, it's totally disrupted and you're sort of rethinking that whole thing and trying to adjust. Um, do you think, do you think companies are just, how, how would you assess companies in their, their success so far in adjusting to what they need to be doing to be more effective in that environment? So I think one of the the cooler stories that we saw coming out of the pandemic is, I mean, it's not really cool that a lot of these ships, a lot of these cargo ships are, you know, waiting, they're, they're at birth off of say the port of LA, for example, I think that they have, um, at the peak, they had somewhere like close to 70 ships that were off the port of, uh, off the, the West coast ports, which is the port of LA, Oakland, and then long beach. And so you had these situations where the, the waiting time, was anywhere from 24 days to up to 60 days in order to unload a cargo ship. And when you think about that process of unloading, even when you arrive at port, then you have to take about anywhere from four to five days in order to offload that cargo ship. And whereas, you know, compared to the rest of the world, I think they can get it done. I think China can get it done in a day at the port of Shanghai. Um, there are other automated ports all across the United or not the United States, but across the world um, that have, you know, port automation. And so they can unload a, a cargo ship within a couple of days. But the U.S. is still largely behind when it comes to the automation aspect of ports all across, you know, whether it's the East Coast or the West Coast. And so what happens is during COVID, you saw some of these shippers, Home Depot, I think, was one of the first ones in order to they really just bought their own cargo ship because they couldn't find any space on all of the cargo ships that were leaving China. So they really they they bought their own ship and they put their own products on it and then they transported all the way around, um, sometimes to the East Coast in order to to offload that cargo. Another interesting one was Amazon. They they bought their own cargo ships as well. And instead of trying to wait it out on the West Coast, they just rerouted all of their ships that they just purchased and rerouted them over into the Gulf of Mexico. And I just think that that is incredibly fascinating to think about it, you know, not just because manufacturing, of course, is going to, it, it's, it's happening right now. Those, those chess pieces are being set up both in the United States and in Mexico and in South America as well. But those take years to build those facilities. 
what in the more immediate near future and what's really already happened is that these ships are tired of waiting for the space on the cargo ship because it's really come to find out, you know, it's really who you know in order to, or what kind of price you're willing to pay um, in order to get onto one of these cargo ships. I heard, um, I, I think it's Nathan Strang from Flexport. He said the other day that a lot of these cargo ships operate like a Disney World or a Disneyland where you have, you know, your certain access points where you pay your admission fee and you you can get on whenever you, you can get on the ride whenever you want to get on the ride. But then you can pay a little extra and get a fast pass or you can do a single rider line. So it's kind of an interesting comparison to think about how all of these major U.S. retailers were just struggling with not only finding containers, finding pallets, finding cargo ships and how they've really adopted their own internal transportation methods in order to optimize their own transportation process because i think it's somewhere up to like 40 45 percent um of a company's revenue is all just it go, or the a company's costs of doing business is all related to transportation costs so if you can control it you can get it down um you can get your shipments where they need to go which is probably more important right now is making sure that you can actually get the product and get it where it needs to go um, that's where we're seeing a lot of retailers focus. And I, I think that the, you know, the, the purchasing of your own ship was one of the more fascinating things to come out of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. And that, that whole, um, vertical integration for lack of a better word, it seems like a, a lot of organizations are, are sort of bringing a lot of their supply chain functions in-house. And that's another part of the pendulum swinging or, or kind of going the opposite direction now compared to the past, where in the past it was all about outsourcing and finding the best 3PL provider and other third, you know, third party providers that can help with your supply chain. But now it seems like the pendulum sort of swinging back to where, you know, we need to control it. We want to invest in our own supply chain capabilities, um, which, which I find super interesting. We have a client actually that has, you might find this interesting that we have a, a manufacturing client that was having so much trouble finding pallets to, to ship their product that they went out and bought a pallet manufacturer. <laughs> and, and it was it was that important to them and it was that disruptive to their business to not be able to get pallets when they needed it and the types of pallets it's, it's a custom product so they had certain types of, of criteria they needed for their pallets um and uh I, I just found that interesting like you just wouldn't have heard that three years ago i feel like and that, that just it was such a uh, pretty eye-opening moment for me when, it, when we saw that from our client right because i mean i i think about it from because i'm in jacksonville florida and so there's parts of jacksonville i think you can probably say this for a lot of areas of the globe um there's parts of areas of town where it's big city but then you just drive you know 30 minutes in one direction and it's all countryside <laughs> the countryside these pallets are typically used as for bonfires so people would have parties and bring in all these pallets and burn you know that it, they were free they store you couldn't stores couldn't give them away and they're just throwing them outside by the dumpster and then they become this crazy commodity where i think the craziest price i heard was like thousands of dollars for one pallet and i'm like gosh imagine wow. being in the pallet business so that's, that's a great story that they you know they just went out and just bought a pallet company yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, like if they're selling the pallets to their competitors or if they've sort of closed it off to where it's just for the, themselves, I think they're still, it would be smart if they did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> have, have premium pricing uh, to your competitors. Um, well, good. So there was another question I wanted to pull up here, um, that I thought was interesting. I lost it here. Um, bear with me. I lost it here. The good news is we're getting a lot of questions. The bad news yeah, is Yeah, it's that... a lot of good questions. Yeah. Um, 
I'll, let me ask you this. I don't, you know, I, I don't want to put you too much on the spot if this isn't an area that you're, you, you have a good answer for. If, if you don't, I'll, I'll try to take a stab at it. Um, this is from Kyler, who's actually our, our podcast host uh, listening in the background here. Um, she asked, when we talk about new tech and logistics, how have you seen best of breed solutions evolve in supply chain management? So in other words, oh. um, rather than being dependent on like your, your traditional old school ERP systems to sort of manage everything for an organization, are you seeing supply chain technologies, sort of those focused supply chain technologies that's, that specialize just in that? Um, do you think that is that sort of a, a trend you're seeing or, or do you have any thoughts on that? That's a really good question and a little outside of my wheelhouse because I, I really have a, 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 I guess, a more awareness around what the freight companies are using, maritime companies are using. Um, so it's not really the, and maybe that's where you, you could maybe help shed some light on this because from a global supply chain perspective, from the logistics perspective, it's really about these companies, you know, you have a TMS, so a transportation management software, you have a WMS, a warehouse management software, you even have, you know, yard management softwares and, and things like that. But a lot of these different platforms, they are really trying to be a lot of things. Um, and I could speak from like the marketing and sales perspective, because a lot of these platforms claim they have, you know, good marketing and sales components to them. A lot of them are crap. And I have no problem saying that because I've worked in these platforms myself. It's been a few years since I've been, you know, elbows deep in a lot of these different solutions. But a lot of them, from the people I talk to, they're, they don't talk well to each other. And I'm assuming that that exists a lot in supply chain management as well. Because in the logistics area, you know, it, it would be incredibly difficult to find a WMS that is also a really good TMS. And or, uh, you know, a TMS that also has a really good, you know, YMS component. Uh, they're either building it themselves and then just shutting everything else off around them. So there were two technologies that came into the space, you know, I, I would say probably about 10 years ago because the ELD mandates came through for a lot of truck drivers. You have to have these electronic logs that are built into the trucks. Um, so a lot of different technology solutions were building for ELDs. And instead, what they should have probably been building for is API integrations. And so API integrations, for, for folks who don't know, is just basically a, a stream of data of how you program your own data. So then that way you can plug and play with other data solutions. API integrations, I feel like, are only just, you know, another, I guess, thing that's only, we're only scratching the surface of what these API components can do. Because, you know, from from my experience, you know, I've, I've worked in home building, I've worked in, you know, obviously with, you know, sports and entertainment and things like that, where the data connections are just so seamless. And in this space, they're not seamless. Um, you really have to really have a team of skilled developers. And that's, Primarily what I'm seeing now is that a lot of the bigger logistics companies on the freight side of things, um, they are really investing heavily into where you were lucky 10 years ago to have a developer on staff in-house. Now these companies are having 10, 20, 30 developers all within the building that can be able to create solutions on the fly. And they are building their own technology, their own API integrations for their own software and then kind of shutting everyone else out. So they're building their own silos. So as if silos didn't already exist, you know, in, in the transportation space where you have, you know, port workers that are going on strike, you know, warehouse workers that don't want to work 24 seven, um, truck drivers who don't want to work 24 seven. There's all those individual silos. We're still seeing those in the technology space as well. But with the adoption or the more so 
adoption of API technologies, I think we're going to see um, that stress alleviate a little bit where there is more data sharing and there is more accurate you know, data sharing via API integrations. I'm, I would imagine that a lot of that is the same with supply chain software overall. Uh, but I would love to hear, you know, your experience on on if those those data communications exist. Yeah, yeah, they do. They're definitely getting easier to have that data communication and that integration between systems. So, so having multiple systems that specialize in certain things that can't be everything to everyone um, is a lot more reasonable today than it was ten or twenty years ago. Um, so, I think the good news is organizations have, have options. You know, if you want to look for that one size fits all single solution that maybe doesn't do everything great, but it does do everything to some degree, you could go look at a traditional ERP system or, you know, there's other options with, with, with like you mentioned, the warehouse management, the transportation management, the yard management, all these different systems that can specialize and do one thing really well. Uh, and this is a, actually another comment sort of building on this uh, from Gassan on LinkedIn. He says the days of MRP could be on a decline, forecasts are inaccurate, causing a cascading effect throughout the entire supply chain. ERP slash MRP systems need to be more agile and provide a bit of intelligence to the end users. And I think that's that's well said. You know, I think forecasting and, and you, you kind of mentioned sales and marketing and how that ties into to uh, forecasting uh, organizations generally need to do a better job of that. Um, and I think that's the other thing is that things were a lot more predictable before the pandemic. I think you could sort of, you know, demand was more predictable, supply was more predictable, you're your trading partners were more predictable. Uh, you didn't have all these curveballs like ports, you know, stuff containers getting stuck on ports for weeks at a time, that sort of thing. So, how do you do you think that's a do you think technology can help solve a lot of those problems, like the uh, the challenges that you, you've talked about so far? Yes, but I think it requires more collaboration. And I think from not just from the people stand or not just from the technology standpoint, but from the people standpoint, um, because what I see, especially at a lot of like the higher executive level, is that they are buying the fancy, the the, the shiny object syndrome, they're buying the fancy software thinking it's going to solve all of their problems. But in reality, it's because they didn't have the conversation with the in the trenches employees of the people who are using that software every day that they didn't have that conversation ahead of time. They didn't have that, you know, an implement implementation conversation with those, you know, I, I'll use freight brokers, for example, when we, as a company years ago, when we made the decision to switch TMS providers, it was frankly a shit show. And it was one of those things where the TMS did not have the capabilities to provide accounting data. Uh, the accounting department relies on, you know, knowing which companies are have really good credit, knowing which companies, you know, that that you can extend the, you know, the billing date out, which which companies that need to prepay, um, which companies that need to pay within 30 days. Um, a, a lot of those components did not exist in this TMS. And so for a lot of folks, it just put a, a strain on the entire accounting department. The brokers who are actually using and booking the freight on the platform were just miserable. They went from booking something like 100 loads a day to a little over 40. And so that's a big, that has a lot of downstream effects. And it was um, probably ultimately one of the decisions that led to the ultimate you know, collapse of the business. You know, We were an asset-based company and being an asset-based company, a lot of companies know, especially if you run trucks, that if you have a truck go down, you know, that, that's a probably a $50,000 part. Um, you're losing the revenue on that truck if it was running properly. Um, so you're, you're, you're 
facing the downtime costs, you're facing the the repair costs, and then you're you're not really using that to the best of your advantage. So for a lot of these different things, they can add up really quickly and technology in the space is not cheap. And so when you're devoting a budget and a certain amount of time, I think that that's where a lot of the gaps are happening in this space is that you're not talking to the folks who are actually going to be using the software before you make that purchase. And you need to know how your folks are getting the job done today and where it can be optimized. Because ultimately, if you do create that conversation and you have those conversations, then you know what's, what steps in the process that you can actually, actually optimize, that you can automate. Um, a lot of times these, these freight companies, they'll take somebody right fresh out of college, they'll sit them down at a desk and tell them to make 100 cold calls in a day. And that has been the business model, I think, for a lot of you know, talking about freight brokerages in, in particular here, but that's been the business model, I think, for a lot of these companies for years. And only now with the adoption of more technology and the adoption of more communication strategies, are they now seeing the value and making sure that those all operate in a cohesive environment, in a circular environment, because if they don't, then if one of those components goes down, it could be the detriment and could be the loss of your business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's well, well said for sure. Okay, we're here playing a clip of Blythe Brumley chatting with me about the future of supply chain and logistics. We're going to continue the conversation, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event it's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 98. My name is Eric Kimberling, and we're here with Blythe Brumley talking about the future of supply chain management and logistics. I wanted to pull up a comment here uh, from Anders. Here it is from Anders Green on LinkedIn. He says he can, can he can confirm we're still getting wood pallets all the time. Once we get up to one to 200, we post on Craigslist for folks to come and get them at no cost. At least 25% of them go to regular people who are doing bonfires or home projects. So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so if you need pallets... Um, just look up Andrews Green on LinkedIn and uh, connect with him there. It sounds like you might be able to get you some pallets. Uh, so it's interesting <laughs> to hear that hear that data point or sort of validation of what we were talking about earlier. I, I remember trying to because we were doing an office remodel at one point. And we, you know, in 
especially with a lot of these freight brokerage floors, um, the, the desk and the floor environment is really important to have a cool look to it. And so I proposed to my boss that we have pallet desks and he laughed me out at <laughs> the business. <laughs> and I thought and, it would just be fight. so cool, have, have different pallet stacks and then you put a piece of glass on top of them. Um, I didn't really quite think it through, you know, if, it, with the amount of times that brokers slam their phones down, I imagine that would probably be a mess. But I thought it looked really cool. <laughs> so there's pallets are, are multifunctional. They can be furniture, they can be bonfire wood, they can ship your goods. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of things you can do with a pallet. <laughs> multi-purpose for sure clearly <laughs> and bonfires of course <laughs> and then uh this is an interesting comment uh from sam graham again and, and actually this i think points to an even bigger topic of discussion here maybe i'll, I'll spin this into a question uh but sam says some companies are forecasting demand at the wrong level of the bill of material and companies are also sometimes stock at the wrong level so they're so they're forecasting at the wrong level and so i think it it sort of touches on really the, the sorts of changes that the supply chain and partners within the supply chain are going through in terms of technology, but also just rethinking how they do business and how they go about forecasting or how they go about, um, you know, building uh, safety stock or whatever they, whatever it is. I mean, I think companies have to really rethink their processes and the behaviors and the technologies uh, that maybe challenge the status quo of how things had worked for those 30 years of you know, smoothly running global supply chains. And now all of a sudden you have to kind of rethink some of those things. Is that something you're saying as well? Yeah, because I think for a lot of companies, the supply chain, you know, uh, executive or the person in charge of managing the flow of your goods uh, never had a seat in the boardroom or never had a seat at the, you know, the executive meeting each week. Now they have a seat at those meetings. And so they can share what they're finding and what they're seeing, because like I said, it, it affects you know, up to 40% of your overall revenue is going towards transportation costs. So why wouldn't you, you know, try to find ways to optimize that process? And I, I, I think for, you know, a lot of these companies, what we're seeing now is that it, you have some of the smartest minds and some of the brightest minds that are trying to predict what consumer behavior is going to do. And in reality, we really don't know, you know, we're, we're two years, quote unquote, or really only even a few months removed from the, the the biggest shakeup in our consumer behavior patterns. You know, are we working from home? Are we traveling? Are we flying more? Are we driving more? Um, and so a lot of those consumer purchases that were made a year ago, a lot of those purchases are still sitting in, or not from the consumer side of things, but from the business side of things, a lot of those shipments are still sitting in a warehouse, you know, waiting to be used. I, I think I read that last year, you know, the, the container ships that were waiting to dock and waiting to, to, to come to port or come to call were sitting out there for so long that Halloween and Christmas shipments weren't being offloaded until January of this year. And so it's incredible to think about how all that merch has to go somewhere. So either you're liquidating it or you're storing it and waiting for this upcoming season. And so I think for, for a lot of companies, they're going to start storage is already incredibly difficult to to source and to find right now so I, I you know speaking from the united states perspective um but i think it's going to be interesting that after this holiday season what those purchasing decisions look like because we're still dealing with warehouses that are overfilled store to capacity and what does that consumer purchasing behavior look like for this upcoming holiday season 
especially as you know people are starting to to get more out into the world or maybe they're not getting back out into the world maybe they're they're you know trying to save money a recession is here um so there's a lot of you know different things going on in the consumer area that you know some of the smartest people on the planet are trying to figure out where this is going and we really have no idea because we're going off of you know un unforeseen territory yeah yeah absolutely makes total sense and here's a Here's a question that I find interesting too. There's actually a couple questions sort of related to this one that have come from the audience. And this one is from uh, Chacha on YouTube asks, I think the question was, can we predict uncertainties like port shutdowns, container load delays, et cetera? Um, and apparently I, I think they had asked the question earlier and we didn't get to it, but um, what can, can organizations realistically, yeah, especially, and I guess here's where I struggle with supply chain management in general. So you had, you had sort of the um, sort of the extreme impact that the pandemic had on supply chain management a couple of years ago. And now it's sort of like, it's sort of settling into something more longer term, it seems like, but it's still changing. You know, it's like, you, you can't just respond and try to maybe overcorrect from what we needed two years ago, right when the pandemic first happened, but can organizations realistically start to, do you see organizations getting a better handle on anticipating some of these disruptions a little bit better and using data and better processes or diversifying their, their vendor partners, like you mentioned before, are you seeing any of this have a material impact on organizations just getting better at anticipating those, those challenges? Anticipating them is always going to be a challenge because of the way of the nature that the U.S. supply chain is structured. You know, I mentioned earlier that every aspect of our industry works in a silo. So you have, you know, port workers on the West Coast that are unionized. You have a lot of the rail networks that are unionized. Um, a lot of trucking companies are not unionized. A lot of warehouses are not unionized. I can't think of one, you know, sort of off the top of my head. And so what you have is a situation where you're trying to predict things that, you know, have unpredictable components to them. You know, whether there's the Port of Oakland that, you know, had their, um, the drivers went on strike for at the, the Port of Oakland. And so none of the drivers are, are going in and none of the owner operators are going in and out, but the port union workers or the port union drivers are still showing up to work. So you have a situation like that in, in particular where you maybe can predict that, hey, they're they're going to have a protest and they're going to shut down for a week. So that's up to you to be paying attention to the news, to be able to find, to diversify your solutions, to diversify your different offerings. And what does that take? More networking, more communication. You have to communicate back to your customer of what the hell is just going on. And you're trying to figure it all out in, you know, in, in a very small amount of time. So while we can, you know, react I think that that's where, you know, the the majority of this industry is evolving is that we're trying to get to a proactive place, but none of the components really exist to make it as, you know, proactive as we would like. Um, mm. So that's where the building the communications and diversifying your offerings really comes into play. I, I was interviewing with um, one woman who's a freight forwarder, and she was responsible for getting her customers' items into port and ultimately getting them from the port to the porch. And because of the back, uh, because of the backlog on the West Coast ports, she actually rerouted the entire shipment to a port in like northeastern Canada. And so that was um, obviously a little bit longer of a trek that her customer wanted to, to have for the shipment of goods. But ultimately, they ended up getting offloaded much quicker than if she were to just kind of wait it out on the West Coast. And so I think that those are you have to be creative. You have to think outside of the box, you know, working in logistics and supply chain, you have to have your main ethos is to be a problem solver. 
And if you're not working to solve those problems, we can't forecast every problem that's going to that's going to arise. Ultimately, it's up to you to be able to have to build those different solutions and to see trends and to build those solutions based off of those trends. And if, you know, X, Y, Z happens at this port, which I think they might because they just passed this law, then we need to be able to have backup solutions in case, you know, our freight needs to be moved to the East Coast or moved to the Gulf or moved to another part of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's. That's super interesting, and it and it reminds me of certain types of technology that's out there now that um, you know I, I've learned more about over the last couple of years, like it, like technologies that'll help you collect data points, not internal supply chain data points, but macro and, and external data points about like the the financial viability of a supply chain provider. Or you mentioned union union versus non unionized. It's fairly safe to assume that a union sort of shop might be a higher risk. Of, of disruption than one that's non-unionized. Um, certainly cost, you know, we have always looked at cost and quality, I suppose that's always been a pretty common uh, set of criteria, but that's still in there as well. Um, that's more of that internal uh, metric, but it, it seems like organizations now are having to be smarter about just thinking about where's the risk. Do we have too much concentration of risk geographically in an area where there's geopolitical risk or uh, weather related risk, that sort of thing. It seems like, you know, we just need to get smarter as organizations and use the tools and data around us uh, maybe in different ways to to really get a handle on on being as accurate as possible in our forecasts. And I think for a lot of these these data tools too, it's it's not just you know the that they're a data solution. It's where are they getting their data from? Who are their data partners? A lot of these different solutions they they have to, especially for, from a data perspective, they have to partner with the companies that are actually moving the freight in order to get access to that data. And a lot of times these companies don't want to share their proprietary data. So you're 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 operating off of a limited pool of sources. And then once you have that data, how do you make it actionable? And I think for a lot of companies, that's where the the a bigger problem is starting to arise is that yes, we have all of these tools and these solutions and all of this data, but how the how do we make it actionable? How do we actually do something with all of the information that we have at hand? Because it's not just, as you mentioned, it's not just from the, the technology side of things, but it's also from geopolitical risk and what's going on in the world. We have to pay attention to all of these different news sources and then be able to act proactive or I mean, I guess reactively based on all of those different information points in order to be proactive for our customers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's well said for sure. Um, what, um, what? So you touched on this a little bit, but maybe I'll ask it more explicitly so we can kind of focus on this this thread a bit. But a, a lot of your, you've talked about how a lot of your focus with digital dispatch is on helping uh, logistics providers market themselves more more effectively. Um, why is this so important to in, in the world of supply chain and logistics? Why is this focus on marketing? Why why is that so important? Well, really, you have the opportunity to be a big fish in a little pond, and it feels weird calling you know supply chain and logistics multi trillion dollar industry that powers the entire globe. Um, it feels weird calling that a small pond, right? But there. Right frankly, just aren't that many people creating content in this industry specific to what your you know role and responsibilities and what your company provides. And so I think that there's just a massive opportunity. And we've kind of touched on this earlier, where a lot of these companies, you know, they they were reliant on going to the conferences, going to the trade shows, and being able to make those connections and have those conversations one on, in a one-on-one -on -one environment. But now, you know, with, with social media, for example, you have the opportunity to have a keynote speak or have a, a keynote opportunity to be able to speak on the topic that you are passionate about 
every single day, 24 hours a day, and it works for you 24 hours a day. And so what we're seeing now is more companies are starting to recognize the strength in talking about their businesses, the the things that they care about that are, you know, sort of adjacent to their business, um, all of these different aspects that, you know, you would typically put on your website or you would typically put in a brochure and maybe talk about it at a conference. Now you have the ability to have that keynote stage every single day. And so only a limited amount of companies are actually partaking in this. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, especially as more media companies are growing in this space. And so when you have more media companies, you're you're getting asked to go on more podcasts, you're getting asked to go on more interviews, you're digesting more content from this space. And so if you're looking around and you're seeing what's going on, it, I mean, it just makes perfect sense to me of why you would need to want to be in, in front of that stage. You want to be on that stage. You want to be screaming from the mountaintop of the solutions that your business provides. And I just think that it's such a, an incredibly, I would say, slow to adopt in this industry. Um, it's been a massive opportunity for a while now. It still is. And for the foreseeable future, as long as we're putting our attention online, um, there's a there's an opportunity for you to capture that attention and ultimately, you know, bring that person to be, become more aware about you as a person, what you care about, what your business problems solve. And then that way, when they come to the buying decision, they know who you are. They know the, the solutions that you provide and they will come to you before they ever go search for a competitor in Google, before they ever send out an RFP. Um, they come to you because they know what you stand for. Because at the end of the day, people do business with people and we can have all of this technology and all this different functionality and all this data to sort of parse through. Can I trust you with my freight? That is the ultimate decision that people are making every single day of the week. Can I trust you that you, if you know stuff hits the fan, that you're going to figure out a way to problem solve it? And ultimately, social media gives you the advantage to be able to proclaim that message of how you handle difficulties, how you handle problems, and communicate that effectively to an audience that may not be ready to buy now and get your services now, but they will be over time, especially if you educate them over time. You know, anywhere from, I think a, a lot of folks, they, they try to get started on LinkedIn. I mean, you know, I'm going to post every day on LinkedIn for two months. And then they quit LinkedIn after two months and two leads. And it's like, no, you're, you're just barely getting started. Think about yeah. it as, you know, a content snowball effect, where if you consistently put your message out there, you are marketing yourself to 95% of the business world that isn't ready to buy. So that when they do become part of that 5% that they are ready to buy, you win before that person ever gets to Google. That's the ethos of sort of the communication strategy that I preach, that I follow myself, um, and that I help other companies refine and define. Um, and that it all really routes back to your website. Um, do you have a way to capture attention through social media? And then do you have a way to or to create that attention, create that demand for your skills and services on social media? And then do you have a way to capture that attention? So are you booking meetings on your site? Or do you have a way for people to request a quote to contact you? Um, I, I'm very, very passionate about building on land that you own. So your website, your podcast, your email list, or and also land that you rent. So social media, for example. Um, I think you have to have both of those in today's world. And there's only a small amount, a small percentage. I, I would 
say 5% maybe of companies of supply chain and logistics companies that are taking advantage of the everyday keynote that you can give. And I think 5% is being too generous. Yeah. Well, and it's such a critical time for supply chain providers too, because it is a time where I, I think it's somewhat unprecedented where you have a lot of organizations that are rethinking and replanning, redesigning their supply chains, which inherently suggests that there could be different partners or new partners entering the equation that people are out there looking for alternatives to what is broken. And so it's a great opportunity for these organizations to be top of mind, you know, when they already, when, when their customers are ready to make that sort of a decision for sure. Um, what, so just sort of, sort of a, a capstone question, sort of tie this all together, everything we've talked about so far, what, um, what advice would you give to an organization that's about to embark on a supply chain improvement initiative? Like any any kind of closing summary words of advice to an organization that's really trying to rethink their supply chain and being better at supply chain management? I think that the most underutilized aspect of this would be having conversations with your customers. That is the driver of every other aspect or should be the driver of every other aspect of your business. The kind of uh, how you communicate to future prospects would rely off of those conversations with your customers, finding out those trigger points of what made them pick up the phone and call you, what made them come to your site and convert to become a lead. Um, the conversations with your customers is something that I don't think happens it happens a lot from a transactional standpoint, you know, where is my freight going? Um, you know, how, you know, trying to, to source different components, procurement. Um, a lot of those conversations are transactional in that sense, but they're not at a deeper level. How are you making the lives of your customers better on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? And then how can you take those conversations and then package them in a way that you can either use that insight, use that market research to communicate to other like-minded businesses that that are in their same area or in their same field or commodity, and then using those conversations in order to market the rest of your business. Because from customer conversations, you can just really just drive so much more. And I'm not just talking about surveys, you know, that you send out in an email and you have somebody fill out, you know, a 20 question survey. Those are important for getting a massive amount of information, but prioritizing having you know, at least weekly conversations with your customers, maybe monthly if their time, you know, is, is a little limited to have a weekly conversation, but having those separate conversations that are separate from the transactional conversations that you're having to go in on a much deeper level. And even if, I mean, if you wanted to take it even a step further, um, you know, having like a customer interview series where you turn that into content and then you have that content and you have your customer on camera talking about how your solution helps them. That is a gold mine for your marketing. Now you know the exact verbiage of what your customer is using, not the jargon that you use day in and day out with your team and your employees, because for a lot of companies, our jargon is foreign to them. You might might as well be speaking a, a, a you know a different language. Um, but now with, because of those customer conversations, you know the exact verbiage of what they're using. So then you can use that exact verbiage to talk to your other customers, to talk to your prospects, to convey that messaging and all of your marketing. It really has just an incredible downstream effect by simply having those in-depth conversations with your customers. And I love how you gave an, an answer to my question and then you tied it back to marketing. That was, that was brilliant. So <laughs> it, 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 it all it all ties back. To, and you're right; it does tie together. It's a great idea if you're listening to your customers and learning what their needs are, and how you can build your supply chain in a way that's going to better meet the needs of the customers. And at the same time, while you're at it, creating marketing content that's going to allow you to 
market yourself uh, to your to your potential customers, that's that's even better. It's really firsthand market research because a lot of this market research just doesn't exist unless you, you know, maybe you know trust the the research reports that come out of like Gartner or McKinsey, those those types of studies. But there's no better case study than talking to the people that you're already working with. I mean, yeah. you're, you're gonna you're gonna drive so much value and so much information from those conversations and the incredible downstream effects that it has um, will, will likely set your business up for success for years to come. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, good. Well, this is this has been a great conversation. I know we could go on and on, and and uh, <laughs> maybe at some point we will. Well, maybe have a part two of this conversation and, and go uh, deeper into some of these topics. But really appreciate you being here today. Um, how do people, uh, maybe just tell us one more time, how do we get a hold of you? Where, what's your website? How do we connect with you? What, what's the best way to reach you? Sure. So I, I'm a content creator in, you know, supply chain and logistics space. So I have some projects that I work on, you know, on the content side of things. And then, but my main business is digitaldispatch.io. Um, if you want to find, you know, sort of just a, a list of all of my work, social media accounts, things like that, you can visit everythingislogistics.com. It's kind of like a, for those folks who are familiar with like Linktree or, you know, a, a site like that, I pretty much just built my own. And so everythingislogistics.com is where like all my social media handles are, the content projects I've worked on. And then of course, you know, um, solutions at, at Digital Dispatch. And appreciate you you inviting me on today. The discussion was awesome. The comments were were great and the questions were were even better. All right. Thank you, Blythe. Great conversation. And it's good to hear it for a second time. And uh, for those of you that hadn't heard it before, hopefully you picked up some good takeaways. And if you did catch it earlier in the podcast or earlier in the season, uh, hopefully you picked up some additional nuggets there. And uh, we're going to chat through some of the takeaways and findings when we come back from a quick break. But first, we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 98. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. We just had uh, Blythe Brumleave on the show talking about the future of supply chain management and logistics. What were some of your takeaways and maybe tell us why that was in your top three of the top three interviews of 2022, Kyler. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm just fascinated by the logistics. If you don't follow Blythe um, specifically on LinkedIn, I highly recommend it because weekly she'll take you through a different process that you never, like never even thought of, of around the logistics of how you do that. The other day she did um, an NFL game, the National Football League here in the United States, how they actually produce the game. And it was absolutely fascinating. I had no oh, idea right. all of that goes into that. And I think that's the fundamental piece of this conversation is understanding and kind of lifting the veil around logistics 
and the overall industry, and not only that, but the opportunities for technology um, to kind of increase the efficiencies of logistics. But again, like we talked about with Chris, until you have a, a really clean operating model, a clean strategy around your supply chain and logistics, then there's no way you know you can get your product on a ship to your customer in the quality that you want in the time that you want, unless right. you've really mapped all that out and been intentional about that. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, it's uh, especially as complex as supply chains are. I mean, you talk about an NFL uh, production or, or producing a, a big sporting event that's complex, but global supply chains are super complicated just in terms of all the moving parts, especially when you start looking at raw materials and sub assemblies and distributing across multiple countries. And then once it gets to the port, you've got to get it through customs and then onto a, sh onto a uh, ship or a, a truck uh, to get it shipped to whatever location. And, and then it's just a, there's just a lot of moving parts that go into it. And that's part of why it's so fascinating. It is fascinating. I think there's a, a piece to me that speaks to in the, the pandemic, the creativity of businesses. If, you know, we could ever find a silver lining out of such a traumatic time within the world, we really did see innovation at its its top tier, specifically in supply chain. Um, you know, it really helps when you have the capital to buy a barge and move it around the United States. That probably helps. But at the same time, uh, you saw businesses really look to get creative so they could service the customer. Uh, and that's something that I hope that customer-centric focused in that piece of there are no bad ideas when it comes to supply chain and that visibility into it that businesses have been forced into that transformation that they continue to look at because that's really going to optimize the overall customer experience as well as the growth of the business in understanding the supply chain. Because like you said earlier, when it comes to all the different systems that people have, sometimes they don't know. Sometimes they don't know anything about their supply chain, especially the executive team. And having that forced visibility into how do you logistically get your product from raw materials, production, distribution into your customer's hands, how does that work and how can you optimize that? Yeah, and what are your priorities too? You know, that's another- sure way that organizations need to be, or that leaders within organizations need to be aligned is, you know, is our focus on efficiency and cost, or is it on minimizing, um, not outages, but um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Disruption. Disruption, or when you can't fill a customer order, or whatever that's called. I, there's a word for it that I'm just drawing a complete blank. I'm probably because I'm over buzzworded out. Yeah, I know. From, from that my... first uh, opening hot topic segment from earlier. <laughs> So now I can't think of like real words. Too much exposure. Books. Yeah, absolutely. Too many buzzwords. But yeah, so having those those sorts of disruptions or, or stock outages or just not being able to fulfill customer demand, that might be more important than cost and efficiency. And, you know, just aligning on what those priorities are in a supply chain is very important. And I think for us, you know, we're so mission driven when it comes to transparency. We've really seen that as an evolution within the supply chain industry and specifically vendors. You're allowed to renegotiate your contracts. You're allowed to diversify, you know, your your overall um, vendors and suppliers that you work with. You're allowed to think outside the box and just like in the software industry, so much of it traditionally has been you have a box business, you need to fit in our box as opposed to, you know, looking at what's best for the actual business and customer needs. So I think that just, you know, 
plagues at my heartstrings when it comes to those different pieces of transparency and, and overall integrity in, in the business to focus on the most important people, which is the customer and, and then the overall employee. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's a good, good way to look at it for sure. Well, good. Well, good conversation. And uh, thank you for your, your top three. We'll have our uh, top 10 countdown of the top 10 interviews of, of 2023 we'll, we'll, or of 2022. We'll uh, play uh, um, some clips from those here in an upcoming episode, so stay tuned for that. We're tentatively planning on episode number 100, so two weeks from today is sort of what we're planning. But, you know, the show is pretty loose. We, we tend to roll with the punches. There might be a big a big topic we just have to cover that's, that takes precedent, so we'll, uh, we'll see how things unfold. But at some point here, we will, in the next couple of weeks, we'll have a, a, a countdown of the top 10 interviews, so you can get little clips and bite-sized nuggets of some of those interviews you may have missed throughout the season. And uh, if you if you want to check out uh, any past uh, interview, including the, you know, of you picked your three, but there's 50 plus that you didn't pick as your your top, uh, your your favorite, Kyler, and others might find uh, value in those conversations too. So you can go back and check those out in some of the past episodes throughout the year. So be sure to check that out. So I want to thank everyone for being here today. Thank you, Kyler, for a great show. Uh, thank you for to our guests, uh, Chris King and Blythe Brumley. Uh, to talk about supply chain and uh, finance transformations. It was great to have them on the show. Uh, Check us out every Wednesday, new episodes. Uh, Leave us a review, subscribe, share it with your colleagues. We'd love to get the word out to as many people people as possible. Uh, So if you find value in it, please be sure to share it with your your, uh, colleagues. So hope you all have a great week. We will see you next week on the next episode of Transformation Ground Control. Take care. 